0: A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. Today, that would be through the, oh my god, through chapter six of Brandon Sanderson's book, The Shadow of Self. So this is the second book in era two, Shadow of Self, through chapter six.
1: Hey there, this is Cross. And I am reserved. No interjections. Stay in your lane, PJ. (laughs) And
0: we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. I so badly wanted to just fuck with that intro again. I had a lot of fun with it, but I'm sure
1: it was just pure chaos on your end
0: i saw <laughs> you looking to lean in and i was like is he gonna do it especially after i fucked up it seemed like you're you like <laughs> almost bit the microphone like you were gonna go for it and i was like all right <laughs> all right nah nah no i'm uh, a good boy a good boy this time <laughs> maybe maybe next time not so good okay so today is our first episode discussing shadows of self by brandon sanderson and we're going to chat about the prologue through chapter 6 but before we do that pj we got to talk about what we're drinking what are you what are you having tonight
1: i made myself a drink that i think is the best drink that i've made <laughs> it's already on the website so i mm-hmm. don't have to not keep my promise to put it up on the website. But it is the port lemonade. So mm. it's an ounce and a half of port, an ounce and a half of vodka, three ounces of lemon juice, and three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup, all shaken. It's so goddamn good. <laughs> and I got this new port that I hadn't tried before, but I I have always really loved Bogle Phantom. Which your parents turned me on to. but specifically, I learned the reason why I love it is because of its inclusion of Petite Syrah. and it's quickly become one of my favorite, or it has continued to be my favorite grape varietal for wines. And this is a Petite Syrah
0: port from Bogle. sounds delicious. It's really good. <laughs> so when when you posted that photo, I was like, God damn it! I can like taste the the thick like. I knew exactly what it was going to taste like. And I was like, Oh my God, I can just imagine that and, luxurious feeling. And it's right.
1: <laughs> like, God damn it.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: it, it. It absolutely lives up to what you think it will taste like.
0: Yum. Yum. What's your back half beer? My back half beer is
1: a beer that I have not had in a very long time. And from a brewery that I haven't had in a very long time. So this is Avery Brewing Company out of Boulder, Colorado. Pumpkin, P-U-M-P bracket K-Y and bracket N. So it's a bourbon barrel-aged pumpkin porter. And this one is not new. This is batch number two, which was bottled on November 7th, 2015. So this is a seven-year-old beer that I'm drinking right now, and I'm very, very excited. It's also kind of a heavy hitter at 15%. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we'll see if it's yeah, seven years should be around the like longest you want to age something like this so we'll see how the pumpkin has has remained like, the flavors are going to be way out of whack compared
0: to what it tasted like last time i had this so right fair enough that makes sense mm.
2: yeah what are you drinking broslyn yeah.
0: Well, PJ, I had very different plans, slightly different, not very different plans for the way that the evening was going to go on the whole. However, uh, editing ran a little bit long, uh, but we got a lot done, which was awesome. So I had to very quickly eat and I didn't get to craft quite the creative martini that I wanted to because I wanted to make sure that we could get started as quickly as possible. So I did something that I knew was fairly easy, fairly, you know, innocent and something that I've actually never to my recollection, had before properly. And that is a dry gin martini, which is really, really easy. All dry gin martini is for everyone at home is two and a half ounces of gin or vodka. I mean, you can sub either way, depending on what your preference is. Half an ounce of dry vermouth and, or sorry, yeah, half ounce dry vermouth and half an ounce of olive brine. I did stirred as opposed to shaken. You can shake to incorporate a little bit better and add a little bit more water to the whole thing. Yeah. It's tasty. It it hits all those like kind of soury notes that I like in vinegary things, without it being too vinegar. It's not vinegar, you know. Olive brine's not vinegar, but
2: what it's is kind of right in of that
0: ballpark. I don't know olive juice. I I genuinely don't know. I'm sure it's I'm sure I some it's of it vinegar. is vinegar. It's not because if you if you taste like pickle juice or I I eat a lot of pickled asparagus. Both of those are like very vinegar heavy. Olive brine is like some – it's more saline almost. Like it's a little bit more salty as opposed to – because I, I did try a little bit because I wanted to compare before I committed to doing this. Because <laughs> I was like, if olive brine is really bad and I don't like it, I don't know that I want to drink a whole lot of it. Um, so I did taste it, and then I took a little pull of the vinegar as well. And it is like a it, – it's saline is what it tastes like. Like it's saltier than traditional pickling stuff is. Gotcha. Yeah, I guess that makes It's sense. really – it's really good, and I also have two olives for when I need a snack. There you go. It's perfect.
1: It's are you perfect. following that up with anything, or are you leaving it at that?
0: PJ, I have a shot of vodka here that I am <laughs> going to be sipping on as my back half drink. <laughs> hey,
1: very dry.
0: Vodka, martini. <laughs> very dry. It's not even a vodka water. <laughs> That's Which my is grandma's good, drink
1: choice. It was honestly,
0: I understand. <laughs> I get it at this point. I totally get it. I think it, one of our friends told me you could just drink vodka waters, and I was like, Oh, and then I tried it. And I'm like, That's actually pretty good. That's like dangerously <laughs> good bad. if you mix it right. It's not bad. It sounds like the worst idea you've ever heard. You're like, This isn't going to make the vodka it could taste better. And you're like, Oh, it totally disappears in the water. <laughs> yeah. Mostly, yeah, it depends on your ratios depends on the vodka
1: uh, and the ratio depends on the vodka
0: very and much and how cold it is vodka. also you need ice you generally need it to be cold for it to like really not taste weird but yeah I digress this isn't a vodka water this is just <laughs> you should do a vodka water next week <laughs> i might you know what i might it'll be a fun one i know way back when in red rising we used to do some like joke cocktails occasionally like the abandoned red rising episode that we did i think it was rr4 if i remember correctly where i had baja blast from taco bell with tequila if i remember correctly like a baja margarita and it was so bad but my audio failed. Do you remember this? Yeah. This is before like everything had switched over. It was a nightmare. We had to re-record within like we had time because we gave ourselves a buffer in the early days but it was still bad.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was
0: We had to re-record it pretending like we didn't have to re-record it. <laughs> you had to pretend like you didn't know what I was gonna say. <laughs> it was yeah. so much. It was so good. <sighs> super good. But like in those days, I used to make the occasional like joke martini or joke drink. And we haven't done that in a while. So it feels like it feels like maybe that should come back. We've been more creative lately than we have, you know. Yeah. Shitty to our bodies intentionally. That's pretty true.
1: Sorry, I'm just thinking on the vodka waters. Vodka Hmm. and LaCroix Pure, or just like straight up seltzer water and like maybe a couple dashes of bitters. Probably pretty good. Could be pretty good.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's not not a whole lot there. It'll work. So with that, PJ, I do want to get to talking about this book because we do have to talk about one of the longest chapters we've ever read. And I'm not going to lie, notes aren't short this week. So <laughs> we, we best get going. I'm glad that this first week is shorter than last book's first week. But what? it's still somehow too long uh, by, by page count. The- you know what I mean?
1: I know, I know. Just yeah. I think it was a combination of your cadence and all of the words together like they made sense. <laughs> but it was almost like you had a stroke and like we're just saying <laughs> words <laughs> together. Okay.
0: So, <laughs> the first episode of the last book was a longer section. Or sorry, was a was it a longer section? Yeah, it was a longer section, and the notes were about as long. I'm glad that I learned the lesson and did end up shortening this one from expectations, because I think I had maybe pushed in another chapter, and I was like, no, 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 that's wrong, before we would actually started recording it. And by that, I mean previously, before we started recording Alloy. We were in the middle of Well when I broke out a lot of these. So, yeah. I mean, this glad is I, six chapters this.
1: plus a prologue, yeah. so seven chapters. But f- chapter five is...
0: Basically nine or ten chapters in and of itself. So No <laughs> joke. No joke. What's funny is there are longer, and we definitely will talk about this when we get there. What's funny is with chapter five, there are longer page count chapters in Red Rising. But I genuinely went and looked in Way of Kings. There isn't a longer chapter by audiobook time in Red Rising. There isn't a longer chapter by audiobook time. I didn't check Dark Age. None of none of the books that I've read recently have with the exception of one chapter in The Poppy War is an hour and 6 minutes and that's the only one that approaches this gargantuan length of like I think an hour and 3. Yeah. Um, I I don't know if it's
1: super fair to use audiobook time though because Michael Kramer reads very slowly.
0: He, he does. does a great job, but he, he reads does. very right. slowly. Right. By page count this is longer than an average chapter but not crazy like this isn't an an insane chapter by length but it is kind of an insane chapter by content like the amount of stuff that's fit in there but we'll get to that before we get too far ahead of ourselves how do you feel about the reading this week how do you feel about starting the second slash first book in this trilogy so i think that's something that we'll get into Mm -hmm.
1: but maybe this is the right time to get into it sure this doesn't feel to me like Like, was this intended to be the intro to a new story?
0: Like, to a new trilogy? This is an entry point to the series, yes. You, in theory, do not need the previous books. I don't think that's true. That's the idea. That doesn't feel
1: true to me. It feels like there are so many things built upon the first, like... you You could disregard the first trilogy, but, like, Alloy of Law feels so integral to this entire story. And how these people operate that it, it doesn't feel like this should be an entry point. I would be lost personally, but then again, I'm not great as far as lit litmus, te- litmus test goes.
0: It, that's what? definitely fair. All, all that I'm saying is like, it's intended to be marketed as such. And like, that was kind of the, the picture of the idea is like, okay, this was like a one-off and now this is the trilogy. This book is written as a trilogy. Fun fact that actually I didn't know until last week he actually so he started writing this book in the middle of finishing the wheel of time so the final book in the middle and he was kind of using it as like a break at a lot of different times he put it down so he could actually do revisions and actually finish it and then he couldn't quite get back into the characters at first and all that's been edited away he chopped up and got rid of a lot of that book but because he couldn't get back into the characters he actually wrote the next book bands of mourning before he finished this book so he wrote what is intended to be book two because he knew where it was going to go but he couldn't get into like the skeleton and the outline it wasn't working for him right so he wrote book two then came back and wrote book one and then just this last year wrote book three in the trilogy i
1: get that (laughs) use three two and four please what
0: oh yeah sure i i was just referring to the trilogy yeah i know i I I totally get it yeah but that's fucking with me a little Uh, bit no and in general i don't think that it's better. To not have Alloy of Law read before, I think you – I would agree with you. I think that it is almost necessary. But I think that a lot of the reason that we get some of the stuff that we get this week is because it assumes that you may not have, if that makes sense. Like, we get to see Wax use his abilities. We get we, – we kind of get those introductions. We get those in all of the Mistborn books variously. Like, it's all – there's always a first scene where it shows off the magic system. Mm-hmm. But I think the entire – the entirety of part one, to me – is really meant to resubmerge the readers and then to also, if there are new readers jumping on, to glom them onto the story. Okay. He's got to get you invested in it, like the idea of it. So I don't think it's the best way to read it. That's why we read it. Obviously, we read Alloy of Law before we you know, went in. If there was a better way to read it, we'd read it the best way. But
2: yeah.
1: Yeah, that's true. I also need to remember that I'm not the typical read like use case. I'm not the typical, like, it's fair. This isn't how most people are going to be reading these books a couple chapters per week and analyze the shit out of them <laughs> and like really dig deep on them. So I get that, like, you and I are not going through while we're reading them in the order that maybe most people should, or if you're going to approach all of these, you should read them in this order. It seems to be the consensus for the most like optimal order. Yeah. Um, or all consensus. I know there's a lot of argument within that space, but yeah, I, we're, we're a little different. I think it mostly <laughs> comes down to marketing.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very true. It mostly comes down to marketing, right? Cause there's also a time gap between these books of, of when they were published and bands of morning does come up a little bit quicker versus shadows of self and alloy of laws time gap, but lost metal doesn't lost metal got put, put to the side for, two full books so mm-hmm. two two giant. and by two i mean there were probably way more than two books written in that span but two giant stormlight archive books so and those things cool are chonky oh they're they're
1: they fuck they fuck hard they fuck it's <laughs> half my bookshelf <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: yep it's, it's pretty sweet they're pretty, they're pretty sweet. All right. Mm-hmm. So let's get into this and let's talk about this book. We start off with the prologue and I love, I love the starting line here. And I kind of, I treat this as a chapter one, even though it's intended as a prologue, but I, I think that it has a brilliant kind of simple first line. Waxillium Ladrian, lawman for hire, slung, swung off his horse and turned to face the saloon. And It's just such a wonderful scene setter and I really dig it because it really throws us back in time because wax has never referred to himself as a lawman for hire. If you know, alloy of law, you know that that's not how he thinks about himself at all. And so this immediately like creates friction with us and it, it gives us this like sort of dissonance of like, well, who the fuck is this guy? Like this doesn't seem like the right character. And it puts us back into that naive sort of state of mind, but not only that, it gives us Wayne as a young kid in this moment.
1: Yeah, there's there's a lot of perspective that it throws upon you here. I would like to disagree with you on that first point, though. Sure. Okay. Because we're left with—we didn't get the stories of Wax as a lawman for hire. We, we got the stories of him as a lawman in the roughs. So this is something completely different. But also, right at the end of Alloy of Law, he's hired on as a sort of part-time contractor for the constables. So, my initial reading of this was, oh, cool, they go back to the roughs later.
0: And he's, he's adopted... So, the first line through the other way.
1: Yeah, I, I took it entirely the other way because he has a new title,
0: essentially, at the end of the book that doesn't, doesn't get explored. Wow, it would be crazy if you picked this up as your first book and then you had this experience. Like you'd hmm. be like, "Wow, <laughs> wax lawman for hire?" Huh? Interesting. I'm just kidding. Shit. Yeah. No. I. I totally. I can see that. I can definitely understand that. It. It could definitely throw you back and be like, "Oh, so this is an interim story." But did you not when Wayne started talking before well, he's I even mean, labeled was, as Wayne?
1: It's the first. It's the first line. <laughs> like that got. Oh yeah. That yeah. idea got shattered almost immediately. But like my Fair. initial thought was actually that this was after Alloy of Law. Okay? But that like yeah, that like oh, okay, that's That's Wayne. <laughs> All right. This is Got it. Yeah. Yeah. But there that there's makes sense. The, sort of the perspective that got sort of dialed in for me was that we know Wax and Wayne aren't that far off in age. Wayne's or Wax is older. I think it's but, a decade
0: or so, but it's not that bad.
1: I don't know if it's really defined or described in the first book, but they seem to be similar in age at the very least. And seeing that Wayne is a seventeen year old kid for me made me realize how young Wax is here and how inexperienced and green he's really he really is going into this sort of daunting task.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Worth pointing out, is it it is about ten years. That is about the time frame. Ten to eleven years is the estimate. Okay. But right around there. Or, excuse me, somewhere between nine and 11 years. Not perfectly clear, but it's right around that decade mark. So, yeah, he he is a young kid. That's still pretty close considering, like, how early they glom onto each other. That vast gap of an experience here between the two is very, very fun.
1: Yeah. There, um, there's also, like, this will come up later because we have, like, a very emotional scene with Wayne and and the daughter of the man that he murdered. But... He was only a kid. He was like 16 or younger when that happened. Like, fuck dude. That's, that's some weight to carry.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot to explore there and I definitely want to, but I, I think I had made mention of like how, how kind of painful exploring that in the last book was right. And like kind of just the idea and we just got the surface and like here, this is the first time in a long time that, like, Brandon's looked at, like, an open wound that we might have a character and, like, stuck his finger in it and, like, spun it a little bit and, like, really made us feel bad about a character in their situation. Since, arguably, the first Mistborn book, like, when we really got the stuff with Reen, And maybe, okay, maybe Tyndall and Says it. I'm underselling Tyndall and Says it. That was kind of a, a finger in the wound a little bit. But this is, this is way harder at a less severe level. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm maybe equally severe. Maybe that was the wrong way of putting it, but
1: yeah. And there's, there's yeah. some unspoken like potential there's questions that it brings up and unspoken potential trauma in that. I think there were two kids. Mm-hmm. Right. And it makes a big point of this is the first of the month. So I have to go here to this
0: one kid.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. That does, that does leave some questions. Yeah. We also get a pretty great snapshot of the roughs, though, here. It's important to note that this book is really the start of the trilogy, like we've been talking about. And so it tries to familiarize you with the world real quick. I mean, it's it's. I don't think it's quite as subtle as the last book was in the prologue, if that makes sense. I think the last book kind of played it slow and loose and kind of let the mystery of the scene fill it in. Where this one feels more like a gunslinger walking into a bar and it's kind of a little bit more hip to exactly what it wants to talk to, you know?
1: Yeah. And I I think a part of that is sort of the intention behind the, the roadmap of this, of this series where he was intending the other one at the outset to be a one-off. And now he understands this is going to be at least two more books after that. Like that changes how you approach a scene at the beginning of a book, I'd assume.
0: Oh, yeah, I, I definitely think it does. I think it changes the entire way that you think about a story, right? If you're if you're just writing something that's meant to be an isolated silo, you very much write it to be an isolated silo. Like you're not thinking about long term impacts. You're trying to set everything up and then pay it off as reasonably as you can mm-hmm. in as reasonable of a time frame as you can. So right. I I definitely agree with you there. I think that's base in a big way. Mm -hmm. This inexperienced wax, though, is searching for a man named Granite Joe and literally goes into the bar and asks this bartender, walking up to him and and asking him after Granite Joe, which is, as always, we have to highlight just such an awful idea in every Western. You go, like, two different ways on this, right? Like, either the bartender is in on it, like, in on the scheme and is like, what's it to you and, like, puts it back on you, or he's a neutral party at best. There's never there's never a lawful good bartender in a Western, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like not once. So, you know, way to go, man. Can't, can't read a room. Totally a failure. It makes it this like naivete play really well here. Of course, this does eventually introduce us to Leslie And when we get even more of like a founding on their relationship throughout this entire section, which I think is fun. Yeah. So I, I, what I love about this scene is that, We have the
1: we have the perception of him as this like renowned and revered lawman from the roughs. And Mm -hmm. like frankly, he's a legend among people. And Dawn Shot,
0: you know?
2: Yeah,
1: exactly. (laughs) He has a cool nickname that people know. Mm -hmm. And like last books we saw like ah. Last book we saw that his motivations for a lot of those bounties that he got famous on were completely different than the, just like doing it for the good of the game. Like he was fucking broke. He needed money and he like did this to survive essentially. And now to like break that down even further and see him just bumble fuck his way through this. And like not only everything on this bounty, but like he already is famous now and he bumblefucked his way through that one too <laughs> it is all built on shit
2: <laughs> he's
0: he's he's standing on a on a crown of shit or a throne of shit yeah it is it is pretty funny i i do i do appreciate that kind of like There's a deep irony to Wax's myth, and I think that's kind of what the story is playing with, right? Like, the irony of myth versus reality a lot is kind of Mm -hmm. what it it toys with, especially in the way that they revere different things in the past and the religions that they, they kind of worship and pray at the altar to. They make bigger deals of things than they actually were in some ways in context. you know the the Catasandre, as it were, was a big fucking deal. so like that's not necessarily a myth, but like Terrace of old and like the you know there there's a lot of that kind of lingering in the background of the story that I don't think was there in the first book fully, but I think now it's really embraced that, and it's kind of putting it in the foreground of like, you know, mm-hmm. trust what you see, not what you hear.
2: yeah, yeah,
0: yeah,
1: exactly and this like this further breaks down what we've
0: already lowered our
1: expectations
0: to <laughs> it just the bottom falls out for wax <laughs> as we go yeah the rest of the way that the scene goes is just kind of wonderful you know it's it's like a caricature of a western in the best kind of ways storming around a saloon shooting folks climbing stairs nothing going wrong according to plan ducking behind the piano as it gets shot and the discordant keys go off you know you can like you can very clearly picture the way that this goes in in a very clean and fun way but for whatever, reason, for whatever reason, the scene and moment that gets me the most is the horse bit—the bit with Destroyer, who's off running away from shit. Unless he's like, "You named your horse," and he's like, "I thought it would help." Like, there's just so much <laughs> like fun shit
1: in that moment that I, I just—I love yeah, it. I totally agree with you. I mm-hmm. I am totally on board with that. It, I felt like the first book clearly as as intended felt like a western. This blows that feeling out of the water. Like, mm-hmm. This feels like like a contained Western show.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I, I, don't feel like caricature is is stretching it too far. You know what I mean? Like it does feel like it's it's imitation not, is maybe better, not a caricature. Yeah.
1: And I honestly, when I talked to you mm-hmm. about this before, when I first read this prologue, I'm like, I don't think I like this very much. It feels clunky. It feels weird. The dialogue doesn't work right. I don't know, mm-hmm. but then like you mentioned it being thinking of it as a character of like a, a Western I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. okay. I'll frame it that way and it feels great.
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, it's, it's interesting how that framing can kind of change things and I think especially on first pass, especially if you've I think especially if you've read Alloy of Law, it's hard to shake your understanding of wax to some degree in my head at the very least. It's like. I even if you tell me he's young, this doesn't match up. Like this isn't the guy that I know. It's like, yeah, he doesn't have two decades of experience yet. You know, Mm -hmm. like he doesn't have all the things that are going to come with his time in the roughs really. But it it wasn't just his
1: character. It was all of the dialogue and like just all of it felt less fluid than what I would have expected from Mm -hmm. the way I've,
0: the way I've come to know Brandon to write. That's fair. That makes sense. But, of course, we then finally make it to Joe, and a twist is revealed. Like Leslie had originally said, everyone here is working for Joe. Thankfully, she portrays the man on a strange, like, compliment or comment from Wax. I think your legs are pretty. Like, Brandon, can we, we gotta talk. Well, he's this already is, said it before, though. It's a second time he, saying it it's it's a repeat joke but it wasn't a good joke to begin with like it wasn't it it was like well the first time i got is a bumbling compliment
2: yeah
1: first time was a bumbling compliment yeah second time i think was a joke about the bumbling compliment and i think it works but it only works because she already (laughs) decided she was gonna shoot granite joe
0: it's true (laughs) yes i i would agree This is where, like, we step back into that idea of, like, caricature in this moment is, like, there is that, like, kind of this is this is funny if you if you are in on the scene, like if you if you kind of like the idea and like get get what he's going for. Otherwise, it's like, dude, like anything is funnier than that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or like more important to say before you die. Like you could crack a better joke wax. We know you can.
1: And I think much much in the same way, the clunky dialogue and like everything that I had a problem with got fixed by reframing it as like a an old style western like show or mm. movie this this falls into that for me as well.
0: Got it. yeah. But Lessie also, when taking out Joe, brings up something that you mentioned two weeks back that I think is important to point out when you said it because I knew that we were going to get here. But crossbows are absolutely Allomancer-proof and very accurate. Slow to reload, but, like, a great option. And also, for the most part, undetectable by alimancers as well. So they're, like... A perfect stealth weapon, as you said. You went through all of these reasons why you're like, I don't understand why people aren't using fucking crossbows to kill people. And I was like, just you wait, it's coming, buddy. <laughs> like, just give it a minute. You're like, aluminum guns seem like a lot of fucking work, and I was like, you are so right. <laughs> <laughs> and clearly, Brandon thought about it a little bit longer. And was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. My bad, but also like aluminum guns are cool. So,
1: yeah, I mean, they're cool. They're yeah. not
0: practical from like a construction standpoint. I think that was also one of the other things that I really appreciate about Renette's character in that book is like, it's not, Mm -hmm. it's not practical. You have to use different bullets works fairly well for, you know,
1: well, I I mean, from like a design standpoint. Yeah. Well, cause they, they do mention that was another thing that I, I think was mentioned, but we never brought it up on the show. So I never got to like dig into it a little bit. It's a specific alloy. To increase the strength of the aluminum. At what point does that no longer become like shielded in the way that it is aluminum and like undetectable by Nancy
0: Great point. Good question. Don't I don't strictly have that answer, but I think that there might be one coming down the pipe. Again, okay. what's what's so interesting about this one that I think we mentioned in the last book is there's still unexplored segments of the story because the lost metal isn't out yet. So like I can't I can't even like pull your chain to like lead you on in some things i mean i can but i can't guarantee you'll get an answer because i might not get the answer (laughs) so i don't know but those those alloy lines i do find really interesting in the long run especially for aluminum because it is a metal that you know avoids detection it's undetectable it's like it's on the allomantic table but it's like inverted from allomancy
1: yeah so i have problems with it okay I have problems with that,
0: (laughs) but I know we'll see. Fair enough. I know we'll see. We do get a bunch of mentions this week, variously, about things being aluminum lined many times. You know, hats, um, quite many hats, many tinfoil hats everywhere, but aluminum foil. uh, That also. Aluminum jackets, you know. The hats
1: thing, I do not like that. Why? Because because it's never, like, it doesn't seem. Okay, so <laughs> here it is. All, the like, <laughs> with all of Alamancy, we're dealing with like center of gravity, uh, yeah, and like the
0: the entirety um, of a person. Okay, that's not necessarily true. With pushing with steel and iron, we're dealing with center of gravity. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay, interesting. But to kind of cover half of someone's head. And say, yeah, that fixes all emotional allomancy. Cool. Why does that make sense? Why does that make any sense? Because brain... <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was being real dramatic in your time. was so good. <laughs> um, yeah, because cause brain, bud. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Have, you. have you considered that maybe they're wearing the hats and it's not effective? <laughs> like, A bunch of paranoid rich people. (laughs) I
1: think even in Alloy of Law, there was like a comment stating it as fact that having a copper, like having a tin lined hat could block emotional allomancy. Aluminum. But yeah. Yeah. Tin foil. Sorry. Basically. Yeah. 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 Bringing that up. Yeah. That makes total sense. It being a sort of placebo. I just felt like there was, there was something stating it more concretely
0: somewhere. So, again, I don't want to I want spend too much time confirming or denying. They do make mention of it wearing an aluminum helmet can protect the user from emotional allomancy in Alloy of Law. I did have to double-check, but mm-hmm. there you go.
1: If emotional allomancy is affecting a centralized location in someone's head that has to be visible and has to be, like, in line, hypothetically somebody could be standing underneath all of them in an underground bunker like in the basement would that work maybe maybe like breeze was in that room off to the side in that meeting with calcier that's a
0: cool idea Hmm. i'll tell you what we're not done learning about aluminum like yeah. we're not l- done learning about most of these metals so that's fair sorry diatribe No, I mean, it was worthwhile, and I led us there intentionally. I knew it was going to come up eventually, so it was better to do it now. We're going to talk about the hats in just a fucking second, but I do want to end this scene as it ends pretty fantastically. You know, she murders Joe with his crossbow, as we've mentioned, arrow to the neck, and the trio make their escape on the back of destroyer, marching off into the sunset. That, to me, is the epitome of both the Western and the Indiana Jones moment where he hops off the train, makes it off on the, the horse, and, you know, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> great BJ is showing the the camera lens closing gradually as they fade into the distance in the glowing sun and mm-hmm. totally i so totally agree with you any thoughts did you like the did you like the end was it fun for you it was fun and
1: like then we get to fill in the bl- fill in the blanks like we get the we get the meeting mm-hmm. of Lessie, and we get the demise of Lessie in both prologues
0: <laughs> yeah and I, I think that it it's such a it's such an interesting inclusion because it does it highlights that relationship in a big way. And so it's a great they're mirrors of each other in that way, which is fun. Mm-hmm. You know, we yeah. can we can understand why wax is heartbroken. So
1: does this mean she's no longer a fridge?
0: To be fair, that's not a completely unreasonable question. I don't have the answer for you, but I think the answer is yes. I think that this is a defridging to some degree. <laughs> I don't know. I can't I can't firmly answer that leave it in the comments <laughs> somebody else let us know your opinion on uh, if this ends the fridging from the first novel cool all right with that we get into part one of the book we're going to cover the entirety of part one and a part of part two inside of this episode and but it's been really an hour and 13 minutes <laughs> hey now we did a 23 minute it's been 50 <laughs> minutes yes it has been a bit okay shutting up Fuck. We're so <laughs> All right. So world world building. I I really think of like part one is like world building the part to me. None of these have subtitles. There's no subtitles for any of these. But I feel like part one is world building the part very clearly. Like it is. Yes. It is entirely like getting reinvested. It's it has its own like self-contained murder that matters. Maybe question mark. We don't really know. It's kind no of a tie to suit. Matter. No murders matter. Kind of tied to suit, but we've got some other stuff going on inside of this. So I I just think about it as world building the part. So (laughs) it's true. It's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In in most books, most of this stuff would be covered in a single chapter. However, there's so much going on that it's like it spans, you know, four. And within reason, chapter one in most books would be a prologue, like the the murder scene would be the prologue, and then you'd go to chapter one, two, three, and those might just be one chapter, but because this is, again, paced as quickly as it is, they're broken up a little bit more, they're more clearly defined, and I have no problem with that, but Mm. I do just, you know, internalize that a little bit. So, anyway, moving past it, we get into chapter, go ahead, what? We're going to say something, fucker? Okay, all right. Chapter Juan. We move back to our regular timeline, and a year has passed since our heroes vanquished Miles Hundred Lives. We find ourselves with a pair of strange characters in the form of a Winsting and Frog. They're hosting a party on a misty night, and it's very clear that there's still a lot of mystery and myth around these new mists. Kind of like we had talked about before, this this series is focused on myth in a big way.
1: Yeah. And I, for one, am also very curious about the mists. <laughs> Post-hero of ages. I don't know about you, Crossland. I don't think you are anymore because you have the gift of foresight. Blessing of foresight? Blessing of foresight. There we go. (laughs) There we go. Where are your piercings, Crossland? Shoulders, right? Shoulders. Yeah,
0: two right here. Mm -hmm. What do you call in little skin pocket? My skin pocket is mostly donuts. Mm -hmm. What about the skin
1: pocket that comes with being a chondra?
0: oh <laughs> oh that one <laughs> i keep my spare bones you know for when i want to be a rat a little ratty boy hmm. who doesn't want to be a little ratty boy i am actually pj oh i was gonna say i am ratatouille and by i moonlight ah. as ratatouille yeah yeah but you're both <laughs> yes exactly right <laughs> i'm actually both the chef and the rat Condra it's really could freaky both. It's there true. could
1: be a person with a little rat on top of their head because they if can you, take if, on
0: extra bones if you think about it it would work perfectly and everyone would freak out and then they try to like get the rat off your head and you'd be like no stop it you're hitting my brain it hurts <laughs> <laughs> so
1: now I have more questions about Chondra, but I
0: don't think this is the place for it. This is not the place for Chondra questions. <laughs> We're nowhere near the Chondra in this book.
2: <laughs> We've
1: already met one, though. At least. No, oh, have we? <laughs> PJ is so convinced. Mm-hmm. I'll I'll refrain from asking my Chondra question because it's going to go on a tangent. and You're going to have to look stuff up. It, I'm gonna have to cut it.
0: <laughs> uh, but what about our our? I don't want to call them our boys. Our our fuckers.
1: <laughs> flog Let's is a great flog. name. I'm naming my firstborn first child Flog. <laughs> Boy or girl? <laughs> oh no! <laughs> flog is a great name for a baby. Flug is a great name for a D&D character.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Both can be true. I mean fair point. Fair fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. Anyway, Winsting, of course, is hosting a party at an auction. And the thing being sold is his own vote in the council where his governor brother has been appointed him, has appointed him to an illustrious position. He wanders about chatting with individuals, bidding on the painting, notes that Ed Warren isn't here and that he refuses to call him suit. <laughs> so there's an inclination that we're dealing with someone of the set here at the very least as he's aware of kind of the secret identity of Ed Warren's from his POV.
1: Yeah, see... I feel so contrarian today and I'm going to fight with you. Not that this is a, a fight. I didn't get that impression that he was like part of the set in this. I felt like this was kind of in an inner circle run by sort of the honor among thieves ethos. And like they're close enough that like, yeah, we, we all kind of know the secret identities of the heads of these shady organizations. And that's just kind of what it is. But I don't know. Either way it's fine. (laughs) I can see, I can see where you come from with that, with the idea that like, because he knows this, obviously he's part of the organization. I just took it as like, oh, these guys are all super close. It's like the secret cabal of like leaders of underbellies.
0: That's a fair point. I guess I was more with using the word inclination. I was more intending for like kind of did you get that same whiff and you don't lean that way it's more of this is the secret cabal this is the group of all of the nefarious people not Mm -hmm. just you know doesn't mean he's a member of the set yeah but he does at the very least know that edward is alive even though he's publicly dead
1: right right exactly so that that's
0: that gives more credence to your theory On, i think it's truly i don't think it gives any more credence than anything else because if it If, as you're positing, if this is like a thieving group, right? Like you're saying, honor among thieves, if everyone knows, then everyone knows. And maybe the fact is, is he could be higher up the totem pole. And so that's part of the reason that he knows. Yeah. If nothing else, it gives us some inky ties to like, does the governor know that suit's still alive? But that's, that's completely inky. So
1: that's inky, but just to, to take it a step further, Mm. his guards and like his underlings also know him as Edwin as opposed to the suit. And I would think even the people like below him in the organization, if they didn't need to know his secret identity, they'd know him as the suit.
0: Yeah, good point. Because Flog, I think, knows. We right. can give it an assistance from credit. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Good call. So
1: there's that. There's also like these people are there representing their houses. Like as normal standing houses within the community and they mm-hmm. just know that they're corrupt and they're shady and they do shady shit. Right. So it, it seems to me this is more of just kind of a, an inner circle kind of deal.
0: Yeah. I, I think that makes sense. I, I and again, I am not a hundred percent on either side of this necessarily. It's that's why I use the word inclination. Cause there's, there's some sponginess there, you know, we're not, we're not sure.
1: It doesn't matter because they're all fucking dead anyway.
0: <laughs> yeah. You you can also see how one of the reasons that I think that it the reason that I want to kind of bring up this inclination or like the lean here is like, as we know from the last book, Wax thinks everyone's in on it to some degree. You know what I mean? Like Wax is accusing anyone and everyone for the most part that he can of being like in with him. And he, he has that like paranoia. And so I think he, that carries he- over a little bit here. I think it's this book,
1: any criminal activity that involves allomancy or ferricamy is automatically, in his mind, tied to his uncle.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I I don't want to say that that's wrong necessarily, but it's fascinating to be in a POV for a moment that is a criminal. You know what I mean? Like to be in a criminal's POV for this this bit. Yeah. And I mean –
1: I liked it. I really liked oh, I did it. Too. I also like yeah. the vanity that comes along with it mm-hmm. in putting up his own painting for auction mm-hmm. for this. And like, everybody's coming up to him and he's like this piece of shit. Like <laughs> this looks like garbage. He's like, no, I think this is a very nice painting and you should pay lots of money for it. <laughs> Look at her ashen
0: cheeks. Yeah. I, I really, I totally agree with you on that. I think that, it is wonderfully rendered yeah no no notes no notes i think that the scene is still almost and i don't think this is i this is not a negative in my brain at all there's almost something still like cartoonish about it in a way like it's it is it is not as cartoonish as the intro is but it's still like kind of crunchy and how like villainous and like mustache really but he's intentionally that like this is a guy who has built his entire career around being knowingly mustache really so like it fits it feels right i mean i think
1: there's something to be said and conclusions to be drawn about the decision to draw someone covered in ash mm-hmm. for this to evoke the sort of noble society of Like the lord ruler and how they operated and conspired i felt like that was genius and i don't know if it was intentional i assume it was but i loved it but yeah definitely mustache twirly and cartoonishly evil
0: yeah, and that's not to say that you can't be a mustache twirler and be an intelligent character. Like, you know, I think of oh, for sure. uh, number one example is Blowfield from Bond, right? Like, one of the best Bond villains and, like, the long-term runner of Spectre and everything else. Super mushtwirl like, bad, but at the same time, like, really complex and deep. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't mean that as a bad thing. Anyway, however, the woman that Dowser appears to be with... He believes to be a spy, according to Winsting's own instinct. What do you make of her and in the interactions surrounding? I really didn't think of much at the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like my first time
1: reading through, I didn't think much of it. Even after he immediately says like, she's a narc. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it didn't, it didn't throw any specific red flags, but I assume at this point she's our perpetrator. Mm. Of, of like, the instigation of the firefight. Okay. Uh, just based on the fact that there's something fishy about her from the perspective of our point of view here. And I don't remember her being specifically detailed later on as one of the bodies. Mm-hmm. But they don't really describe many of them in general. My gut instinct is that she's the one that sets all this off. She's not with the police, but she's also not there for what she sh- what she says she's there for. So,
0: yeah, I think that she is a fascinating character because there's still this question of who exactly she is, right? Like we, we think we know it seems to be I Dash-we, right? But we aren't yeah. able to confirm any of that at this point. And like, what's I Dash-we's involvement. Like, it's still a big mystery, even at the point that we're at right now.
1: Yeah. And she can't tell us because she's dead in the kitchen.
0: Yes. Yeah, we'll get there. But wow, what a what a scene, you know, like I fuck, man. I I've mentioned this before. I'll I'll mention it again. Era two to me is better than era one. I love I love era two. I love era one for a lot of reasons. It's a wonderful fantasy story in a lot of ways. But I think the way that Sanderson's writing has grown more than anything else. And like the way that he frames scenes and builds characters is just more more my shtick it is more what i gravitate towards the stories Mm -hmm. so yeah loving the story so far
2: i have Mm -hmm. more
1: problems with it so far but those are
0: surmounted by my love for it so Yeah. yeah yeah i understand yeah i i think i think we'll get there so yeah i don't doubt it of course gunfire breaks out this moment and flog and winsting retreat to his office flog comes back stating that everyone is dead and winsting sees this as an opportunity to flee except before he received a response his throat done be slit i
1: do love how if we're calling this the first first book of the first trilogy we also start with the perspective of of a well-to-do high-stationed evil person that isn't long for this world
0: very true yeah that's that's a great parallel as well there you've you've been keying into those you've been you've been on top of them love it Hmm. because that is a great parallel inside of the story especially because it's it's from the opposite perspective too like this is as opposed to being from the hero murdering it's the murderery. well was it the, the prologue killer?
1: that was Lord Trusting's pro- point of view? Yes, then? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I had
0: it backwards, yeah. but I mean, within reason, that's still like the way that the if you if you think about it, the books are still opening with these things. They aren't necessarily the first scene, but it's within the first couple of chapters. So
2: mm-hmm.
0: I think it's still a parallel. I think it's still good. Yeah, I dig it. Yeah. Okay, we go into I can, chapter like and stuff, and and we're gonna come back to chapter two. We open chapter two with wax, and we begin to get little teases of this black book that we're going to get exposed a little bit more to throughout the rest of the week and the words of Marsh contained within. But Wax is quickly distracted by Steris, of whom is trying to plan their wedding and is simultaneously bes- bemused and displeased by the fact that Wax has so few invites to send out to any friends or family, as well as how she potentially is inviting his old criminal enemies to the party. It's a funny little bit, and it points out some of Steris's eccentricities that I find really well executed inside of the story those eccentricities are intended to be brandon sort of realizing and getting some commentary over the years on one of oh god what's his name uncle Keine's kids right uh, from Elantris that is able to count the distance and that that being like the savant aut- autist stereotype as opposed to thinking about autism as spectrum and this was his way of representing it and I think he here he finally gets to a point where it really comes out in the character and I feel like it's really well represented like it's not made a big deal but you can you can see that in the character.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good point to make. As far as the actual content of this goes I, I, just, mm-hmm. I I don't have much to add, so I, sure. I hope that doesn't sound like I'm just kind of steamrolling through it. But yeah, that that's a very great sort of evolution in his writing as far as inclusion goes. But I swear this is a plot point in like a cartoon or movie or something. And probably a lot of them, like I'm sure it, it's not. Contained in one, but one very specifically that I'm thinking of. Like I know this happened. Of like all of the <laughs> all of the invitees to a wedding are the like nemesis and like <laughs> villains that they've they put mm. away or or dealt with. It might it sounds be like- Venture Bros
0: that feels accurate yeah my first thought was like powerpuff girls for some reason but like that camp like the wedding of mojo jojo or something like that you know it wouldn't be the powerpuff girls getting married it would be mojo jojo getting married and all the heroes showing up or something but as this fixation of hers to like dive into something and she's like well i just had to find out about like all of your enemies that you've had over the years and she just pours through that because it let her focus on something it makes mm-hmm. a ton of sense you know I have a cousin on the spectrum, and that's entirely how, you know, he occasionally gets fixated on fixing a song. He's a big music production guy, so he'll just get fixated on making sure that the whole thing's right. He just cannot stop or do anything else until he's, you know, he's got it where he wants it. So, mm-hmm. it's really good at what he does. So, it, it's cool. I, I want to I just talk about this for just a second longer in the fact that one of the things that really impresses me as far as Brandon's career goes is, is not just the representation but his strides to represent things accurately because he himself knows that he is of a very limited perspective and like the way that he goes through a ton of research and talks to people with various disorders at this point in his career past elantris and everything else once he had kind of the means and a little bit of success behind him all the research that he puts into the various conditions and like people that he includes he tries to be very full-minded with all of that which mm. I appreciate. Yeah,
1: yeah yep. me too. Seems to be so, doing a, a good job here.
0: Yeah, right? No no complaints from me. So, Wayne Waltz is in, of course, and it's time to go. They've got a marksman, or the marksman, to chase down. And it's clear that Staris has accepted Wax for who he is in this moment. But we step out onto the street, and Marisy shows up with a motor car. I... Honestly, don't think this is something that they talked about much in the first book. I'm pretty sure that they're pretty much still using horse-drawn carriages and that this is an improvement or a change between books. But they have trains, so like, why not? They're right there. They're right on the, the cusp of, of this sort of change in the Industrial Revolution. It, to me, it feels like I, it wasn't addressed
1: in the first book, clearly. And to me, it feels like these recently exposed, exploded in popularity. Like They probably existed a year ago. Mm -hmm. Um, but now they're more common. They're, they're making active strides in making the city accessible to them. Like this is a brand new thing. I really like the way that wax describes the shifting and the other operations within the driving that Marisey is doing through his ignorant sort of point of view. I know that's not a super insightful or like novel thing to do when you're talking about perspective, but this is a departure from something that was a huge sticking point for me that you just glossed over and like ignored in the last book in in not the last book in Hero of Ages in Ellen's perspective. I think I don't remember what it was, but he described something that he would have no reason of knowing the word for.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, I don't remember what it was and I'm not going to try either. to even yeah. claim to know what it was but I appreciate you holding a grudge without knowing why you're holding said
2: grudge.
1: Well, I know it was resolved immediately <laughs> afterwards when yeah. spook describes the flowers as colorful somethings. Mm-hmm. So gotcha.
0: Yeah.
2: I don't know why it, that it, still bothers me though.
0: <laughs> I was, I was recently listening to one of Sanderson's podcasts and he talked about revising the way of Kings for the 10th anniversary edition and like the current editions that are being sold. And he was like, man this i used this analogy so many times and there's no fucking way that they would have known about that detail like they there's no way and i can't believe we didn't catch that and like not a whole lot of people pointed it out or anything like that but like very very subtle i don't want to give it away necessarily because it's a little bit of world building but it's just such a small thing and it's like I didn't even flinch at it when I listened to the audiobook because I don't assume that they went back and corrected the audiobook. Maybe they did. You know, it's still Michael Kramer, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It was interesting. Anyway, I, I do want to wrap up kind of the, the idea of the question here, which is we catch up with the chase that they're kind of going on and they arrive at the breakouts and they quickly find themselves breaking after the marksman or marks as he dashes between streets. And gosh, this is just an excellent chase scene. Like this is wonderful. All of this, like
2: mm-hmm.
0: this whole this
1: this whole section feels very, very tight as far as chase scenes and action scenes and resolution scenes and like it's all it's all very fluid, well put together and and just goes. It just goes. Mm-hmm. It's it just feels so good. But that's how we get to a scenario where we have like a how many perspective switches do we have in the fifth chapter?
0: We have a lot. So there are three POVs, but I think we swap perspectives like six times. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Six or so, seven. Like, yeah. But it all feels good. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. All of this just rolls, and this is no exception to that. It
0: feels great. But I, I did want to make mention, uh, we're not quite there yet, obviously, talking about this a little bit later. This is something that I think King geniusly employs in a lot of his writing. And we, we obviously haven't read anything outside of a short story, and you haven't read anything else as of King's. But, like, he is so good at tying this together. And this feels like something that Sanderson has picked up on or started to, like, key into in a big way along the course of his writing career. After having to write and having written, I think at this point, five giant epic fantasy novels in the form of two Stormlight Archive books and one or three Wheel of Time books. Like, he is – he's done – he's finished some meaty boys. And so, like, he's gotten good at this, naturally. He knows Mm – pov now i think a lot better yeah so it's it's fun to also be tracing sanderson's growth through the through the work as we're following it which i think is another fun thing to kind of point to it's something we pointed a lot to i think back with red rising and so i think it's important not to ignore it now that we're you know here with sanderson like skip over
1: um well the first trilogy is all darrow there's no like pov
0: Change. No, but we talked about how he became a better writer. Not, I'm not just talking TV changes. Okay, just strictly how writing changes and improves and develops, and how you can see how he was a writer before and how that's evolved into who he is now. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's that's my point. But eventually, of course. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, buddy. Eventually, Wax catches up and leaves his mark with a haze killer round that he manages to launch into the man as he's facing a fellow steel pusher. We get a sense as he finally gets close enough to have the conversation about why Wax is chasing him, and it gives him a sense of justice about the wrongdoing that Marks has committed here. He's killed a child, even if it's on accident, and that makes him a more worthy chase than any of the others out there. Yeah,
1: it's it's great. like good evil kind of showdown. We obviously get more nuance and complexity. There's the fact that it wasn't intentional, but either way, no matter what, it's an egregious offense and playing into that sort of emotional response is, I mean, it shows that wax isn't just a robot mm-hmm. for the law, <laughs> you know, like he, he's, 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 ranking the worthwhileness of this chase based on the severity of the infraction regardless of if the law like has any difference in it technically
0: right right and waxes again like we mentioned earlier he's kind of the special case law guy right like he's not he's not the um he's not your conventional conventional constable and so there's he's got a very different approach to what he's doing and what he chooses to chase and what he chooses to handle and i think that there is a reality especially as we get some details a little bit later about the way that he approached wayne and the way that wayne handles things and we get a lot more on his thought process and philosophy here but i have a strong feeling that if marksman wasn't shooting back he wouldn't shoot him you know i don't think he planned to kill him No, no, no. And I'm I'm not suggesting that I think he's even planning to kill him. I just don't even think he'd maim him to begin with. You know, like there would be no like point being Wax doesn't seek unnecessary violence. Like he wouldn't go out of his way. I think
1: this is I think this is what we're seeing is him versus like Judge
0: Dredd might and would. You know what I mean? By comparison.
1: I mean, here isn't even isn't it even mentioned that like he goes for the leg or whatever it is as opposed to. Yeah, for a kill shot. Leg, right? Yep. I mean, I feel like that says everything that we need to say about this. Like he—he's fair point. He sees the potential redemption arc.
0: Ironically, ironically, (laughs) truly for Mister Sanderson, (laughs) Sanderson does not because he very quickly kills (laughs) Marks. His character believes in redemption. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Fuck! I'm still so angry. Every. Not really. I'm not. I'm not really. But like at the same time, it's like, man, oh, God damn it. All right. Anyway, I can't help but hold that the tiniest micro grudge on that opinion. So, again, if micro I grow yeah, it's kind of it's a macro grudge. You're right. You're right. It's <laughs> kind of bad. But right now I have to keep it under control because I have to talk reasonably. But again, if I meet you a Dragonsteel, Brandon, if I talk to you a Dragonsteel, I'm going to bring it up. I got to bring it up we're going to talk about irredeemability for characters because <laughs> <it>, uh,
1: <laughs> I think you're going to find him to be a very charming and I would imagine I'm person. probably not going to bring it up not even bring I'm probably it up say
0: <laughs> hey I really love all of these characters great work I really love this one can you write a second warbreaker book please thank you all right talk to you what later. I really love about
1: this character is his moral redeemability <laughs>
0: be like talking about wayne right who's literally a character who is who's done like an egregious wrong and is like earning redemption actively this is one of the two characters three characters that i really wanted to talk about in that episode but we weren't there yet and now it's like now do you get my rage with like a very obvious example where it's like come on dude like you write about this shit you know i don't know yeah we don't need to spend too much time on it but that's part of the reason that it was irked is because especially as I had chatted with a couple of the people on our discord about it, this was one of my one of the best examples because Wayne has such a tortured past and is like actively putting his all into overcoming that. And so you're telling me that despite doing everything that he can outside of being possessed by a demon when he killed the person.
1: So <sighs> I would like to make a small argument just for mm-hmm. the sake of thinking about it sure wayne is putting everything he has into trying to overcome that like that flaw and still hasn't forgiven himself for it whereas the
0: forgiving yourself and redemption i think are two different things but continue I know. sorry I,
1: I i agree but yeah the the argument brought up being like anakin skywalker that's a reveal of something horrendous that he did that wasn't like a part of his decision-making process in the future. And was just sure. kind of a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem to really affect his decision-making like backing up. I, as I far as just exactly, devil's really advocate down. argument goes, I, it's not a well thought out or like s- skeletonized argument, but there's a difference there.
0: I think so. The, in my head, the proper comparison instead would be the end of Return of the Jedi when Vader kills the Emperor and then opens up to his son and does the right thing and puts balance to the Force in this moment. Is that redemption or not? Like, that's the... That, to me, is the redeeming moment, right? Or that should be considered redemption. And Brandon's argument is no. <laughs> but, but does he kill the Emperor? I mean... <laughs> This is an entire okay. side podcast we have about going. this. Let's yeah. just keep going. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I appreciate I appreciate what you're saying because I do think that in that context, yes. But I think that those are can are coming at this from different angles. They I are. do think what you should do is you should watch Multiverse of Madness and then watch the episode, and we can do a full fucking thing about it, and we can talk about the argument. We'll do it as a symposium. Let's fucking do this. I'll rewatch it. We're going to tear down an opinion on a symposium. We're going to invite Brandon Sanderson on it. No, we're not. I mean, we might, but he's not going to say yes, so it'll be fine. I don't care. (laughs) The coward said no. (laughs) The coward didn't respond. More likely. Okay, anyway. I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get into it. We'll get into it. Okay. (sighs) eventually, Marks is just barely out of reach again from wax when he catches a glimpse in the crowd that of bloody tan and that shocks him and stops him in this moment. And he's he's just floored by this sort of possibility of this man that he saw shot in the head previously in the prologue of Alloy of Law. And he just comes and flashes back into his memory. He swears he sees him in the crowd. Marx escapes during this time frame and wax is picked up by Wayne and Marisy in her car. This feels very, like, thriller movie-esque. You know what I mean? Where you, like, see the dead person in the crowd. But. I mean, it feels <laughs> the
1: immediate, like, it's not, it's not a like, comparable, like, emotionally or, like, situationally. It's not comparable. But mm-hmm. for me, it's comparable to the intro scene to the newsroom.
0: Oh, interesting. Actually, not wrong. Yeah good call anyway there's something really really
1: fucky going on with this and there's a there's a couple little like notes mm-hmm. that understandably get glossed over like very quickly but like it, it feels like there's some sort of time jump and memory lapse that happens like wax comments about being surprised by how quickly Marcy was able to catch up with him with the car like she shouldn't have been able to catch up that quickly and mm-hmm. like he his brain just kind of either rationalizes it or like he just kind of disconnects and lets it go but like there there's something real time fucky going on with this scene
0: I think time fucky okay
1: I mean there's a gap just it feels fucky. like there's a
0: yeah. it feels like there's a gap okay there all right that makes sense to me i I can drive with that there's definitely like, something.
1: It's not like time travel, but it's like we're right. in his perspective, and he blacked out a section of time, so it felt like, oh, I was just there, and now Marcy's here, and like, how did that happen?
2: Yeah, right.
0: Yeah, yeah. I definitely agree with you. I think that it's it's messy to say the least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Fuck. Like, what do, what do you do? I don't know. Are you not going to
1: highlight and italicize that and say time fucky, as a
0: as a prediction (laughs) dear listener he did highlight that and italicize it and write time fucky in quotes (laughs) to turn it into a prediction (laughs) chapter three we open with a chapter from Wayne's perspective talking to his hat and warning him to keep safe (laughs) They continue deeper into the breakouts and Wayne stumbles into an old man and begins to imitate him and adopt his accent. This is like pretty genius and in line with this character here. Again, this is world building the chapter and reintroducing us to our, our characters and their traits in a in a big way. But I love this little moment, especially with the can you say a word starts with H after he's been like imitating him back and forth. It's just wonderful.
1: Yeah, we've mentioned it a few times this episode and definitely times throughout this entire series, but Michael Kramer is a genius when it comes to these audiobooks and does a phenomenal job with accents specifically and Wayne and his sort of repertoire. And this scene is no deviation from that. It is really incredible how he's able to do this. I will say... What a fucking jarring conversation to be in as that old man with Wayne, like to just say something and he just says it back to you you in like, like a parrot, like Mm. a bird, and then not being off put by it and continue and just roll through the conversation asking for shit. Like, what the fuck is going on?
0: Yeah, there's a there's a lot in that moment and i really appreciate it i really really love it i think it's great so i have a uh, i have a tough time talking down about it no sorry there's nothing about it
1: that is a wild conversation to have with a person
0: <laughs> it, yes it's a wild conversation i just it, like part of my brain questions whether or not it's fully realistic if that makes sense because like wouldn't you would you do exactly what you did you'd probably react that way because you're like why are you talking like i am and then it's like what like why are you talking like i am and you get like that sort of like comedy of errors almost mirroring moment makes sense it makes sense was my my core point i think i i walked one direction and then i walked myself out okay yeah if that makes sense mm-hmm So, yeah, I, again, to go back to Michael Kramer's performance, we praise a lot of audiobook narrators. I think most of them are geniuses. I've honestly, I don't think in the last couple of years I've listened to a bad audiobook narrator, which is great for me, (laughs) but in particular, I think Michael Kramer has done an excellent job with all of Brandon Sanderson's works and did an excellent job with The Wheel of Time. So, not shocked, but, uh, you know, happy. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah. He's a god of character voices too. Like the number of voices that the man juggles is impressive. Especially in like
1: dialogue heavy like when when there's multiple characters talking
2: mm-hmm.
1: at each other being able to like parse that and it just sounds like a conversation's being had in a room that you're listening in on and you can tell because they're so distinct. As far as voices go, it's perfect. It's awesome. I love it.
0: Mhm. Totally. So, he eventually, Wayne eventually runs into Plowface and Bullhead, which is a great way to name characters without actually giving them meaningful names. (laughs) It's simple, it's effective, it's comedic, it's something Wayne would do, and it makes perfect sense. He talks with them and eats all of their apples while they all split off after having a brief conversation. He finds Bullhead down an alley and manages to disguise himself using the power of Bend Alloy and quickly giving himself a time bubble and blending in like an old man with a a little some crap on his head and like a little blanket over his feet he does eventually hear a bullhead spilling information to mark saying that the Connors are here and confirms that to marks before getting up and starting a fight with him wayne very quickly catches him bringing him back to mercy and wax inside of this moment it's just a wonderful full-blown here i am my name is wayne here's what i do you know scene yeah
1: it's it's great and it I had made the case that you need to listen to Alloy of Law before Mm -hmm. listening to this or read Alloy of Law before reading this. Sorry, we're talking about the audiobooks, so that's on my mind. Yeah, But like the idea that this has to come after Alloy of Law, I think this kind of makes the counterpoint to that. Because this is the exact sort of skill set that we got fed to us through the interrogation scenes in Alloy of Law. Mm -hmm. It's more subtle. It's quicker, but we still get the same feeling of like he uses his disguises and his personas, and his understandings of how to interact with people through those personas in order to gain information subtly. He does exactly that with what shovel face and, and <laughs> bowl yeah. head, bowl cut. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> what what were their names? Plow face. Plow face and bull head and and yeah, plow face and bull head. So like we get that, we get bend alloy, and we get specifically the fact that the size isn't static. You can you can change and decide the size of a bubble for bend alloy, and that becomes very relevant later. When I don't remember the name, Marisie, but Marisie, oh, yep. is using her chromium is it chromium yeah i think it's chromium that makes sense so the fact that she's able to dictate the size of the bubble for chromium
0: is very important sorry cadmium my bad
1: cadmium okay chromium was mentioned at one point chromium is an alimantic metal yes okay either regardless yeah we get a lot of information that's very very relevant that we would have learned earlier. I don't know if we really explicitly talked about the size of the bubbles in Alley of Law.
2: We talked about... We
1: did a little cad- bit, but... Cadmium. Cadmium? Cadmium? Cadmium. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, how she could make it the size of, like, a small room if she wanted to.
0: She could do about 15 feet, yeah. Seven and a half feet from her center.
1: So, in that sense, it seems... To, to imply that she understands that the bubble can be a different size and she can dictate that.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but here it seems novel. So I don't know yeah. what to make of that.
0: I, I mean, fair, fair point. And I, I think that part of what this is, is also relaying to us is that like, he also has the potential to be sloppy. Like he's, he's not perfect with his elements. He's an expert, but he's not perfect. And so it adds a little bit of like, I don't know, every time that you get like these little mistakes that do happen, part of, okay, there's a correction. Part of like a core thing that I have with the series is everyone's really good at their alimantic ability. They rarely suffer consequences for using it incorrectly, right? Like everyone doesn't fuck up their ability. And this is like a near fuck up. And so it feels good because it's like, oh shit, like I almost used this wrong. It's super close. Like it's a near miss, which which is what I really like
1: like about it. It's just pointing out that they didn't miss
0: Well, yeah, but it's it's a near miss to say that, like, I make mistakes. Like, we haven't seen a mistake, but I make mistakes. Like, that's what it says. Or, or, or I can make it's mistakes. Or possible too. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, that, I get I, that. I'm flawed, um, which I feel like we don't get a whole lot of in the original Mistborn trilogy. Everyone knows. I mean, as Mistborns, so they're like, well, I'm so good at this. Yeah, I want to see Vin just yeet herself off the Lord Ruler's <laughs> Tower. <laughs> I guess, you know... to <laughs> To that point, I think that one time that she burned Duralumin, she did kind of yeet herself on accident. So like she wasn't sure, but that was a brand new metal. You know what I mean? Like she didn't know exactly what it was going to do or that interaction was brand new. So she did kind of yeet herself into the
2: army.
1: Yeah,
0: that's true.
1: But at the same time, not not important to get into. It just, yeah. the way it's described, it makes it feel like feelings. And like, you can, you can really feel how things are going to be interacted with on a physical sense. Mm -hmm. So like, it's not that hard to judge how you're going to react based on it.
0: Wayne makes a joke. That doesn't make
1: it impossible to fuck up.
0: No. Right. And I I do agree with that. Wayne makes this joke earlier that I, I didn't bring up, or maybe it's a little bit after this, where. Actually, I think it is after this where he says that he, he it's his secret fifth sense, right? Is like this yeah. this other thing or whatever. It's a, it's a wonderful joke because she's like, what? And she's like, I can not smell worth of beans. And that's a very funny like yeah. worth of beans. Like, what the fuck? Man, <laughs> love it. But. To that degree, to that point of what you're saying, where it's like it's it's a reaction. I do feel like it is a sixth sense of sorts that most of these people have with their elemental capabilities. You know where they know where those limits and stretches are, like someone flexing a muscle. Like you know the directions your muscles are going to bend. That said, even as someone who lifts or runs or swims or does whatever, you can strain yourself without being fully aware of it. You can do things and fuck yourself up, and. With the accept of, acceptance of the pewter dragging, we didn't see a whole lot of that. So, yeah, it's kind
1: of I like I had kind of rationalized it under the same umbrella as ATM, which is ex- mentioned explicitly, but burning ATM also changes the way mm-hmm. that you think in order to comprehend and properly act upon all of the stimuli
0: being like. And I, I think ingest. I agree with that. I I think as a general like allomantic principle that seems to also apply is that like in proportion to whatever is changed, you're having a bodily reaction that would react to the proportional change. Like whatever is happening to your body proportionally, you know, figures yeah. it out. So. But you can still fuck up. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of that's that's why I like it. I like the idea that it's like, oh, fuck, I caught him in a bubble or like, you know, there's that potential for error. Of, like, catching someone accidentally or, like, messing up in general. It felt like everyone was so proficient before. <laughs> it
1: They did. They were. Yeah. Even mm-hmm. learning. Like, we skipped a lot of the right. training montages. We got, like... It's fair. A couple training montages, and they were still, like, holy shit, she's so good. Right. Uh,
0: yeah. So... We move perspectives from Wayne over to Marisy, and we see that her attitude has shifted a bit from the last time that we'd spoken with her in the previous book. Of course, a year's passed. She's not so much jealous of Wax as she is a bit resentful for kind of his treatment towards her and everything else. But she doesn't feel the need to prove anything to him. At least she states that, right? Like she actively inside of her monologue is like, I don't have anything to prove to him. She still maybe acts differently, but at the very least how she feels is she doesn't need to prove anything she's approached by three little boys and she pays to bribe them for information they attempt to extort her for more and i think she genuinely would have got her more information i don't think it's just strict extortion like i don't i think that this was just like lean in for more than what she was getting and wax jumps in to intimidate them as the dawn shot this big burly guy with the shoulders out but what do you make of wax and Marcy's semi-diverging approach on how to handle the criminal underworld And this, this whole kind of situation between the two of them.
1: Marcy feels like she's very much actively trying to convince herself of this as opposed to being genuinely like, because Mm -hmm. she's saying it so often. And so like fervently to herself that she doesn't have any feelings for wax and that he like, they should just have a professional relationship. Like, why is this happening? Blah, 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 Mm blah. It feels too pointed. Okay. Like it, it's so on her mind that it feels like it's her actively trying to convince herself that she doesn't have feelings for him.
0: I'm just I'm not realizing. When when I originally wrote this, I actually wrote that in that it was like I, seriously. I was like she feels the need to prove something, and then I went back and reread it, and it's like I don't feel the need, or she doesn't feel the need to prove anything to him, and I'm like. This is such a juxtaposition of like, do I do I actually quote the text or do I try to interpret it? And I think that's such a it's such a fun line to blend where, like you're saying, is she just talking to herself or is this Brandon trying to say, no, she's good. She's good, guys. I think that it's I think that it's the former, not the latter.
1: But that is a hard call, though. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: That there's
1: it could go either way, but it feels (laughs) very much. Dominating her inner monologue to the point where, like, it's fake it till you at, make it. At, for the, at lack the very of least, wax is
0: totally wax is still a measuring stick for her in a big way.
1: Mm. And there was nothing real between them. No, no, it's pining. Yeah. And there there was, there wasn't, an if in an, like by her own admission, there was an infatuation with him that had to be mm-hmm. reckoned with, but never got resolved. So it's understandable that he would still be operating under that supposition that nothing that it hasn't changed that much. You know, I don't know.
0: It kind of it kind of got resolution, right? He said no. He said that it wasn't a good idea. And she kind of took that as what it was. So he didn't, though. Yeah, he did. Almost explicitly. He said this is not going to work out. No, he said, yes, I'll marry you, Starris. No, that's not what he said. At the at the end of the book of Alloy of Law, they sit down and they have a conversation, and that conversation is them talking. And he says very poignant, pointedly, in I got I got to actually look it up. Is it in the chapter before? She is very pointed about the fact that God, where the fuck is
1: this? For some reason, I thought it just kind of guy it is i found it
0: okay so they're they're talking about miles miles is your catch lady maracy you know whatever wounds heal waxing says even an old horse like me watching him attack me and doing nothing i'll bet that was excruciating i don't think i could have stood for it even if her places were reversed you have done it you're like that you're every bit the man for maracy that i thought you might be yet somehow more real at the same time she looked at him eyes wide lips pursed as if she wanted to see more he could read her intent in those eyes. This isn't going to work. Lady Maracy. I'm thankful for your aid. Very thankful. But the thing you wish between us is not viable. I'm sorry. I stand corrected. Yep. I was like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that's pretty firm, but she kind of goes like, Oh, I wasn't implying that. And kind of like blushes at it and like has, you know, I, uh, mm. it's a little too harsh, but like a fangirly reaction to it in its own way. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like a,
1: a re, she has a reaction that proves she has a reaction that they're on different like levels of terms. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Of maturity when it comes to that.
0: Mm-hmm. And I I think in Wax's internal monologue he also goes on and says that like if he had been ten years younger it might be a that's the question. one I
1: remember and I know that yeah. it was an internal monologue.
0: Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I had forgot. Yeah. That he doesn't actual, mention like, that at conversation. Level. Okay. Cool. Yeah, not that big of a deal. But the point being, though, is that I think that that even further fuels the fireword, Like, because she's been denied, she feels like she has to prove something, you know, like I. It
1: really could go either way, though, like it's yeah,
0: right. It's hard to interpret (laughs) Mm -hmm. right now with where we're at. So I I think we'll get more development there. But
2: yeah, Mm -hmm.
0: it's. You know, it's so funny that we've spent like twenty minutes talking about this. Will they? Won't they? That's literally in the past and has already been solved. But is like it's so. It's like this model figure to her,
1: and it's it's so present though, Mm -hmm. that I would simultaneously not be surprised if they end up together anyway. But I'd also be very upset about it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. I understand. I Mm -hmm. understand that. It it does add like a. It's a spin on a love triangle, a different spin on a love triangle to some degree. You've got like a, a pair that has agreed to marry somewhat out of convenience and some, we'll call it like budding affection. That's probably the best way to put it. Like there's there's something there, but it's not a whole lot of anything yet as far as context. There's a lot of acceptance, like mutual acceptance of this versus like you have infatuation and pining that's one way. For the most part. And yeah. so you've got like a an angle without a base and they're related and they're half sisters. I'm not in charge of writing. I didn't write it. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. Sandwich. <laughs> just,
1: make, them, make them a straight line.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you fuck. Mistresses
1: right. are written into the contract.
0: <laughs> I feel like a mistress man Wax
1: and Saris' relationship because their their relationship isn't one of passion or love it's one it's one of power
0: yeah and status yeah like i said budding affection but not really there yet
1: i mean yeah they're they're going to naturally try to find
0: affection but that's not why they're together mhm that isn't why they courted at the yeah. very least and the idea of courting as a concept on top of this is is a clear enough indicator that this isn't romance in the conventional sense.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So Wayne, of course, in the middle of this appears with body in toe, and everyone's flabbergasted by the fact that Marx has been served up by our boy. They quickly exchange jabs about Wayne's effectiveness, including like Wayne jabbing himself, being like it works every time except for that one time and that other time. And maybe and then gets cut off when something zips out of the air and clacks against the paving stone next to them. More of these bolts rain down and Marx is caught by a bolt killed on the street as he was left there in an attempt for our team to find cover and hunt this hunter. I love that like wax launches up into the air, too. By the way, can you see why I picked steel pushing wax is the coolest. I fucking love wax. You couldn't convince me to be a lurcher after the wax and Wayne books. There's no way. I, I am just
1: more dug in on it because of <laughs> Renette.
0: Okay. All right. She's so funny she, cool. She basically does exactly what you were talking about. Like it's which exactly is the other what part of I it. want. And it works. It, it was it was very funny because I knew that that example was coming and I was like it's it's our dueling personalities. It's our <laughs> dueling sides of the coin. I want to jump into the air. You want to roll around on a fucking chair in your house. <laughs> like, <laughs>
1: And I would totally design my house around that. It'd
2: be fucking
1: awesome. And you'd be sitting there like, "All right, I need to line myself up with the hallway and I've got a little steel plate right on the end so I can like push myself down the hallway. But it takes a lot of like prep work in order to get to
0: that position. I just fucking walk man. (laughs) (laughs) You You realize it doesn't matter. It it would be, it's more about the flying. (laughs) But yeah, no, yeah. I, it's very funny to me. Anyway, I just love, I love that he pops up. Marks dies here. We get our hunter. What yeah. do you think of this whole scene?
1: Well, I mean, immediately I think about the videos that you see online and maybe that's just like us because we grew up in central Minnesota where there's a lot of fishing that happened. Not that fishing doesn't happen everywhere else, but like right. fishing is a very big culture around us because lakes are most of the landmass is covered in lakes, but the uh, the fishing videos of people like reeling in a fish and that fish gets eaten by a bigger, more toothy fish. You know those videos. Yes, that's the feeling yeah, we're I got some- here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, fair, fair point.
1: Um, you mentioned at one point that like everybody is flabbergasted by Wax or by Wayne showing up with the body, and it's really just Marisie that's flabbergasted by this because wax expected it wax is like basically stalling for him
0: throughout this entire scene yeah i fair fair point fair point it's it's just that he is in tow in the way i think i think wax still reacts but like he did expect success you know he wasn't anticipating failure but you know Mm -hmm. was pleased when he when he showed up yeah said something
1: like i had to give wax room for his methods yes which is
0: i i think that's
1: almost i think a phrase that was used Maybe also in the Wolfenstein games in a very more nefarious way.
0: (laughs) Jesus. I mean, Brandon Sanderson is a gamer, but like, (laughs) I don't know if he's going to throw. He's not going to throw death's head in the middle of, you know, the rest of this context. Hoo boy. Actually, it's not death's head. It's the lady, right? It's the lady who mentions his methods. Forget her name. Fraulein something or other. But she's got the... uh, Melty face later.
1: The daughter that betrays her.
0: Yes. Yeah. Right. Important plot point. Spoilers for Wolfenstein. (laughs) Just kidding. Put that at the top of the episode and smoke it. Okay. (laughs) So. We are uh, a Wolfenstein podcast. We are now a Wolfenstein podcast. Welcome to Words and Wolfenstein. Your favorite (laughs) weekly podcast about precisely seven video games. (laughs) we could probably do it we could probably pull it off i'm not i'm not not convinced i we could get tim olson would be on it he'd want to talk about all of the development that it did and in tech and like all of the things that they took from quake and doom and blah 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 i mean that's uh, a symposium right there it does sound like a symposium okay so anyway point being but the hunter eventually descends and quickly catches Maracy when everyone else kind of vanishes. Searching for him, Wayne is sneakily and kind of really funnily shot like over the shoulder right into his butt. She, Maracy, is quickly caught by the hunter, and Wayne shot like back at him over like his shoulder with a crossbow, which is really funny because you just hear the grunt like <laughs> in the alley. Like, you just imagine that grunt; it's very funny. Marisi's held hostage. She's running through these philosophies and these ideas and like what to do in these situations. Again, world building the section. And we get this inside look into Marisi and her knowledge of police procedurals and like how much time she spent just getting TVs don't exist. But like how much she understands the way or like seemingly understands. The, I said police procedurals. What, what are you shaking your head at? I mean, it a joke. cars exist. No of course, TVs exist. TVs existed many years later. We're not quite there yet. There's no HC here yet. Get away. But end point being here is that she is running through this internal dialogue and monologue in her head relating to what you should do when you're being held captive by a hostage. And as she's like running through, and her her pulse is calm she without really giving it a second thought it's it's such a well-written statement but without like giving it even a minor thought she pulls the shotgun out of the holster sticks it up into his jaw and pulls the trigger in like one full move and it is so crazy as she blasts this man's brains out because it is the most calm cool collected killing that i can imagine from her boy
1: howdy would it be clean if she just blew the guy's brains out? Because she basically decapitates him with this shotgun. Like, his, his entire face is gone. His whole head is gone. And I know, like, the the term's the same, but holy shit, she's, like, wearing the guy's head as, like, viscera on her shirt. And then just goes walking around with it later.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the entirety of the next chapter obviously fixates on a lot of the things that are here, but like just the way that whole scene unfolds is one of those like I jaw dropping moments, jaw blasting moments, you know, face off yeah. moments. Truly, mask off face off moment because mm-hmm. the dude's kind of ugly, right? Like, isn't that another joke? Or like, has a messed up face? Yeah, there. <laughs> Wayne says something a along the lines
1: of Russ. No wonder he wears a mask all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Oh, Um, also, there are situations in this book where rusts are said in the middle of sentences and they're not capitalized. So that was something that I was still curious about from last book. We're good.
0: Yeah. And it was only one time that it wasn't and then it was capitalized. So Mm -hmm. felt felt odd, but. At the very least, I felt like I could discourage you from looking into that too much actively. So, fair point. That airplane is so loud. Okay. With that, we go into chapter four. We move to Wax, who is shocked, to say the least, by what Marisy has done. And she, too, is utterly befuddled. On top of that... It's almost impossible for wax to talk to her as she's temporarily deafened by the shotgun blast next to her ear in this moment. And there's some very funny like comedy of errors and mercy talking loud. And, you know, I I know that we were lumping a bunch of praise on the audiobook, but Michael Kramer cranks the corn up to 10 on this. And it's so well done. He does. That's true.
1: I don't know if you had the same issue as I did, but my first time reading through this, I was confused. Because for whatever reason, I didn't get the perspective shift. So I felt like we were mm-hmm. still in Marcy's head. And I was like wondering why she was simultaneously able to hear what Wax was saying and not respond to it properly. That was resolved pretty quickly. But mm-hmm. my first time reading through it, it just didn't click that the perspective had shifted. And I think that's partially to do with the fact that like, there's nothing going on out of spoken text. Yeah fair point so it feels very kind of disconnected from that so i i didn't get a all right we're in wax's head now
2: Mm,
0: not quite enough to establish that sure Mm -hmm. i think the the thing that gave it to me was the his reaction to the gore in the moment right because she she wouldn't react to the gore on her you know what i mean that's true that said, there's not a firm like like you're saying. It's not like it's firmly declared with like a strong wax internal monologue here. So there's not like a you know a clear delineation of character. So and that makes sense. That's
1: something that resolves itself really quickly. But
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I can understand that. But mm-hmm. but again, like confusion there isn't a bad thing because this is a moment of pure confusion on the part of Maracy and definitely on Wax's part, being like. Whoa, I didn't, I didn't expect that,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, cause she, she even posits in the middle of the scene, like, why does this keep very loudly because she's still deafened, but she's like, why does this keep happening to me? Do I look helpless and <laughs> wax because he knows she can't hear him like internally says it where he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah probably <laughs> that's, that's exactly what's happening. Um, like, what is this? The third time I've been taken hostage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which is pretty it's 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 just too perfectly comedic you know what i mean like it's it's great i like it Anyway, Reddy swoops in and begins to create a report on the scene, taking the notes from Wax and Wayne. Aradell, the newer Constable General, isn't able to report to the crime scene at this time. Reddy, of course, informs Lord Wexelim of the other crime scene that we saw in the prologue. More to come here in a minute. But there is a larger engagement and exchange here between Reddy and Maracy. What do you make of Captain Reddy's pushback against Maracy in this moment?
1: I mean, what I make now isn't relevant because we know, (laughs) but my first time reading through it, I didn't really think a whole lot of it. My my initial thought was kind of the same as any of her interactions within the contemporaries and and her coworkers, the other constables, like she's the new kid that hasn't really earned her station and Mm -hmm. was hired on for whatever reason, but snubbed everyone else that was looking for the role. And that's true. Like, I mean, that's ultimately what it actually is, but it's more specific than that. So,
0: yeah, I, it's, it is, it is kind of that new girl in the block, and especially as we learn a little bit later, like a lot of that's re-emphasized in that portion. But right now, as we understand it, it's it's a little bit jarring, especially considering her contributions and the way that, like, Wax and Wayne are both treated with this deference. But Maracy, as the legitimate officer in the moment, is treated with so much scorn. A, yeah. Not scorn, necessarily. That's a little bit aggressive, but,
1: you know. But you can also, like, understand Maracy. Merisi- is probably not unique in the idea of like joining the force because of the stories of wax and Wayne fair. Like these are not only like folk heroes, but they're Mm -hmm. their folk heroes. Oh, sure. Yeah. Like it's, it's something completely different and like, it's not a, I don't think it's a valid comparison to say like, Hey, you should hold her to the same regard as you do them because she's doing the same job
0: totally it, it would be like if any of the clint eastwood characters went back to new york and then everyone's like i've heard all the stories about you and you know one person actually hangs out with them and is friends with them yeah 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 that makes sense so you know obviously she's held up by captain Reddy. eventually Marcy does join our w and w pair in the carriage y- you know because like See, see what i see what i did there w, and w is that not is that not great i i don't think i mentioned it to you but i think i tweeted something today like wax and wane and words and whiskey are a mere are like a match made in heaven like it's perfect <laughs> because it's w and w and w and w it's <laughs> so many w ants <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, love it but i and i also don't know if you saw it but Obviously, for each of the series as we go through, I create the YouTube cards every day or every time we release an episode, and I changed it this time to the w and Whitbeer because of Wax and Wayne, but it's also Words and Whiskey, so it's like, yes, it's just a nice little, little nod. I figured that was good. so. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Marcy does eventually make it into the carriage and our detective trio begin to attempt to unwind the scene of the crime that they arrive at. Were there any details that stood out to you regarding the governor, the brother, the room, or the guards and who they disseminated or how exactly they disseminated the scene?
1: Off the top of my head, nothing really stood out specifically. Now I want to go back and like re <laughs> re-approach the scene with that in mind. I mean, there's there's our our steel pushing. What's her what's her face? Pharaohchimus. That's not among the bodies, but they don't explicitly lay out all thirty bodies and like describe all of them. So like, mm-hmm. that's still not super solid in my mind at this point, right?
0: Reading right. Through. Some things that they point to though, right, are like the the little bit about like. Uh, Wayne pointing out that, like, throwing a bottle to start a bar fight, there's the—actually, I think that's later. Never mind. Backing yeah, up, it's in Chapter later, 5. But there is the, like, guards appear to have been taken by surprise from from some perspective. And having the knowledge that we have from the prologue, it feels like the throat gets slit. The guards aren't killed at the door, right? Right. Like they're killed when whoever walks in, maybe killed them before walking in. Yeah, there's there's a lot of like interesting little bits that even despite us having that perspective, we're missing from this scene that makes it a really interesting moment. Yeah, for them to like stumble upon or stumble into and try to figure it out.
1: Yeah, it's all pretty crazy. No standout. Well, I'm my my standout thoughts on this. And maybe, mm-hmm. it, maybe it doesn't belong here. Maybe it belongs later. But the idea of trying to break down who shot first and, like, the order of things happening feels mm-hmm. irrelevant and, and feels, sure. like, because because all of these, like, all of these actions basically happened instantaneously from the perspective mm-hmm. of people, like, actually at the party. Like, it just snapped into chaos, even though, like, It was the guards, then this group, then that group, then that group, then that group. Effectively, it happened within a split second. So it feels dubious that you could gauge who got shot first and how it
0: all started. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That's the the art of detective work, PJ. Come on. Read Sherlock Mm -hmm. Holmes. What are you doing? Sherlock Holmes wasn't dealing with speed. He wasn't dealing with magic, that's for sure. Some people may have pretended that there was magic, but it was never legit. Fair point. Yeah, good, good point. There's a note tucked in here that I wanted to touch on because I figured you would not let me get away without mentioning it. Concerning Breton's retirement and Ardell's appointment after him... Hitting the silent ceiling about a decade beforehand. Obviously, we get more on Claude throughout this scene as we're introduced to Aradell as he's walking around. But what do you think of Breton's kind of chuffy, you know, replacement? There's kind of a core question here too that's been asked by nearly everyone through these scenes. Why was this done and who did it? And I can't help but imagine dark murdery piano stabs going Dun-dun! throughout this whole, you know, <laughs> scene. There are a couple of moments. Breton is the guy that I'm assuming is a chondra. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. That at the last book you assumed was a chondra. The fact that he's still retired
1: so. kind of fucks with that,
0: but I'm still holding true to it. Okay. So we'll see. Um,
1: new guy seems kind of like a buzzkill in <laughs> really, I don't I don't know. In, in the, in the sort of cartoonish sense of,
0: you can't play by your own rules. I'm the I'm in charge here. Kind of interesting. So like Breton felt more like that to me. Like he felt more like the I'm in charge guy, right? Like like you can't break yeah, these rules. Like what are so. you doing? He did. And and to me, at the very least, and this is colored a little bit by Chapter Five and the Ardell conversation that happens in there. But Ardell, at the very least, he feels more like a more like an old general if that makes sense. Like, he's yeah. he's been through this war many times. And so, like, while he does carry some of those traits that you're saying, he's he's colored and flavored a little bit differently because I think that it's he's a little bit jaded by experience. But he does take everything into consideration that, you know, Wax and Wayne and Marisi are saying. You know, he doesn't brush it off. That's fair. And it is good to nonsense. see that
1: he's at least open to using Wax and Wayne as sort of a constable adjacent contractor, which was admittedly grandfathered in based on their appointment at the end of the last book. But at least yeah. they're, at least he's operating within those bounds and, and seems amicable to the relationship. So that's good.
0: Yeah. It, it does seem like a good move and change. And but, like, it, it feels like we've upgraded constables, you know, between stories. Not that he's completely, you know, without flaws or anything like that, but at least he's not kind of... Breton had this sort of... I don't want to call it one note, but he had this very, like, kind of hoity-toity attitude about him that I don't love in police characters. I don't know. I don't love in yeah. cops. Yeah. yeah. sort of, we are dead. the law. I think yeah.
1: he's dead. And the condor that's inhabiting his bones is kicking and kicking it in Bermuda while uh, someone new came in and like took over the actual job. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine being a condor and like just grabbing someone right before a sick pension in retirement.
0: (laughs) (laughs) like hey guys I have to hold up this disguise for the next two decades I have to let this guy like he's gonna he's gonna have a gradual death it's gonna take some years but like the narrative that I've crafted this guy lives at the beach bar he just drinks Mai Tais and then he goes to the beach and then more Mai Tais that's it that's his day maybe a book sometimes he sleeps on the beach sometimes yeah sometimes it's and he's yeah (laughs) the locals leave him alone and if they don't i eat him what he tips well he tips well oh man that's really the secret that's really you gotta tip well that's that's how Condra keep their secret you know all right <laughs> Fuck. i love this story with that we go into part two no longer world building or, or maybe still kind of world building as we go into chapter five, as we've mentioned many times that this is the longest chapter that we've covered in audiobook format. And in general, it feels like just an astonishingly long section of the book. We've definitely read longer chapters, but there's something about like, I, I wouldn't cut anything. I can't imagine. Nothing feels out of place here, but it is very long. <laughs> well, I think you just split
1: it like they
0: go through the cycle of
1: characters. A Mm -hmm. couple times, and I think you just make a new chapter in between them. Dice
0: it. (laughs)
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Why not? Why not? Yeah, I agree with you. It's a small thing, but it was one of those things where it was like, what? So, it's okay. But getting into the actual story itself, Wayne here is tugging on his lucky hat, that wide-brimmed bowler that he... Oh, my God. I have to say that one more time. Wayne's here talking on his like, yeah, that wide-brimmed bowler that he loves and adores so much. He's collecting more healing, and so he's walking around with the sniffles so that he can feel better when he needs to or get blasted later down the road. As we understand, he later gets blasted and cares himself of it instantly <laughs> with health, which is, I mean, good for you, buddy. Today is an important day for him, after all, and I love all of this internal monologue that we get from Wayne this week. It really makes me feel that much closer and like he's that much deeper of a character uh throughout this monologue and you get more close to understanding him in a really profound way that i don't think we we got we like narrowly saw in alloy of law but this is so much deeper wayne doesn't want for much and he doesn't enjoy the trappings of luxury outside of a good strong drink you know like that's that's his thing and to good strong drink. drink we cheers take a sip folks Um, because of how long this episode is i just want to let you know we reloaded we did we had to and i'll probably do it again there's a chance i won't but (laughs) yeah because i did make a full ass beverage
1: (laughs) (laughs) what a character wayne is like his -hmm. perspective is truly fascinating but perplexing and I think mm. you put it properly when you said that we get close to understanding, because I don't think we truly could. I get it. Like, I get that he has this internal logic that he operates within. Like, he has this rule set. He has this logic that, like, his it, it, it drives him. But it is so far from, like, the normal understanding of things. It's a very, very well done. Very well done. But you mentioned the sniffles and something I want to bring up is something that's mentioned here. And you've mentioned to me that, and maybe it's maybe, maybe it made it in. Like I interjected earlier in the, in the show. I needed to make a note of this. So I'm glad we finally got here. And I remembered, I remembered because the notes have a giant yellow spot telling me (laughs) to remember that cross on foot. About how he mentions that he's sniffling because of a disease that can't be cured from gold. Like gold has a has a bad time, mm.
0: a difficult time curing diseases. It he's not sniffling because of the disease. He's just making it's implied mention. though.
1: It's I felt like it was pretty heavily implied that like he was being affected by a disease, and gold wasn't able to help that.
0: So Wayne tapped his metal mind, drawing forth healing in a moment. His body burned away its impurities and healed its wounds. It thought alcohol was a poison, which showed that a fellow couldn't always trust his own body. But today he couldn't, he didn't complain. Also washed away his sniffles for the moment though. Those would return. Okay. It was hard to heal from diseases with metal mind for some reason. Fair point. Fair point. So interesting. We definitely want to talk about that more, which is to say that like, Him opening himself up likely made him sick and also didn't solve the problem when he turned it off, which is like a long term consequence of storing gold because he probably caught something, you know, his body was susceptible to it. Yeah,
1: it's another risk, or there's something else that
0: I think it's another risk. I think that makes sense. Yeah,
1: it does, or I don't know, maybe it's a venereal disease. (laughs) Uh,
0: uh, (laughs) Okay. Brandon Sanderson wouldn't <laughs> never say this.
1: That's all but, you have to say. That's all you have to say. You don't have to no, say I gotta, anymore.
0: I, I, gotta, I gotta finish the thought. I gotta finish the thought. If there were any of his characters, that fuck, it would be Wayne. Yeah, of course. Also, if there's anyone who's likely to have a venereal disease out of any of Brandon Sanderson's character, it's also Wayne. If there's anyone who could give less of a shit about it, And tell everyone for no fucking reason. It's also Wayne. Wayne is truly Brandon Sanderson's ace in the hole for all this shit. And he hasn't drawn it yet. He hasn't played that card. It could be so fucking funny if you played that card, Brandon. Just like lean in a little bit. I mean, I think
1: it'd be even funnier. Maybe it wouldn't have as big of an impact, but I think it'd be even
0: funnier Mm -hmm. to me. Sure. If that person is Dachshund. So Wayne manages to find one of of those bottles of alcohol from wax and they further break down what they think the murder in the mansion could be related to. Or like they they try to piece it apart and try to divest a little bit. It's also interesting to know that like Wayne prefers rum and wax is a whiskey drinker. Like this is a very interesting thing. It's a small thing that's revealed over the course of this, but it's funny to me. And so I have to bring it up. I fact think we have, have very to drink different drink for it. We have to drink I, we fight. Do, we do have to drink fight. Here we go. Cheers. So, this at which one of murder- us had
1: to be a whiskey drinker
0: and one of us had to be a rum drinker. Who would it be? I think I'm the whiskey drinker and you're the rum drinker. All
2: right.
0: Do you do you think otherwise? No, I think we both like both. That's true, but I think you like rum have more, more than of I, I sweet do. Tooth. Yeah, I don't. I barely have a sweet tooth. So I think that Mm -hmm. that makes you the rum drinker. I'm down with that. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that I'm the whiskey drinker. But you are too. Like, it's just if one, you know, if we had to choose, I think that's the way that I would lean. Yeah. Yeah. Do you prefer? Do you personally prefer one over the other? I prefer whiskey. Okay. That's that's interesting to know. So on assignment for the two of us, that would be the way that it would break out but i have decided that i prefer rum with cigars though over whiskey interesting that makes some sense to me because i think i like scotch with cigars more than i like most whiskeys but that is a topic for a different time when you're here preferably but oh. when we can we can try some rum and scotch and cigars oh, i was a quarter of the way through my statement so <laughs> the speed with which the murders were accomplished could only point to a fair chemist steel runner capable of pulling off those particular set of moves. Wayne makes an analogy that he feels like it is reminiscent of a bar fight of which you can definitely agree with and kind of the idea of like throwing the bottle and instigating the whole thing. It's kind of a fun exchange that happens here but Wayne does manage to trade for some rum here and trades one of his m- many barely like they they i can't even really call it like an aphorism before he like heads off you know uh, so first of all wayne could
1: have just as easily said bar fight wax would have gotten it we would have gotten it would have perfectly colored the pictures but i think it's really funny and on brand for him to continue to describe <laughs> in excruciating detail the bar fight that would then go down while Wax is trying to like interject and like, yeah, I get it, Matt. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> like, it's like a king of too far. Yeah. And I mean, he's not giving more information than we need. He's just continuing to like fill in our
0: already filled in brains.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's great, especially because. All of this inside of this series or this book more than the last one, too, also points to Brandon having an understanding or at the very least researching like alcohol a little bit more and like having a little bit more in the novel and also having understanding of culture. Like not that you can't from like movies, you can absorb a lot of this, but a lot of the previous books shied away from this. And it's it's fun to have a pair of characters that kind of lean in a little bit, you know.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah, I I just I, I think that's great. It's, it's just a wonderful little tidbit to add on top of the whole pile. So, and all of Wayne's aphorisms are just prime. Like they're What is an aphorism? So it's like a, uh, kind of like pithy statement. Like the grass is always greener on the other side. Like, you know, kind of those sort of colloquialisms, but it's specifically something that's like either obvious or maybe obfuscating, like too obvious or too obfuscating. If that makes sense. Okay. Gotcha. So specifically his like aphorisms are very silly where like he's like, I've never, I, I never said, I forget exactly how the way that little tiny section ends, but it's like, I've said it, haven't I? Or something like that. And he's like, what? Oh yeah. You did say that literally right now. So I guess I can't wax, can't call him on it. There's some bullshit, you know, kind of like intervention there, but that's what makes it kind of an aphorism to me. Gotcha. So we move from Wayne over to Maracy and we get a great sense of the city from her perspective and the changes that are evolving and permeating Ellendale. We also get another interesting bit of world building. We get the paper's perspective on the murder scene. Its inclusion here feels like a nice nod to the yellow journalism that occurred during the industrial revolution that I really appreciate. I'm a big, big old journalism history buff. I have been like, one of the things that i love very deeply and profoundly and know a lot about so I, I love this little highlight where it's basically talking about the newsies and the yellow journalism that was going on at the time the penny papers and kind of the way that it's all pushed it's it's great any takeaways of your own from the paper or with merisi's observation of the situation
1: i adored the paper being in this spot and we we had the paper like the broad broad sheet entry in the last book mm-hmm You had warned me about it before, and then we got to it, and it didn't really matter. And you're like, oh, no, it was actually about this book. And I still don't quite get the, I guess, to back up, you warned me that it'd be very jarring in the audiobook because they jump into this broadsheet and like read the whole thing. And I honestly didn't find it jarring at all. I felt like it made hmm. total sense to have it included here. And specifically, I think because it's important and contextually so, important to have that. But like here. It, it wasn't like it just jumped in.
0: No. Okay. Real quick. Yes. I hear you. Here it doesn't jump in. Is it the end of five or six that they jump into a broadsheet and they start talking about a bunch of things and it like ends up? It happens. I swear to God, this week. This is not what I'm talking about, though. This is a genuinely great inclusion where it's like textual; it's on the page. What I'm talking about is there are certain pages that are like full. They look like a newspaper page that's been printed. Oh, I thought that's what this book. was. No, this is just this is a chunk of text. That's the like one excerpted. that is
1: the one that is a full
0: broadsheet. Yeah, I think it's at the end of It didn't come strapper. off come off as jarring though. Hmm, I always found it very jarring compared to the way that the rest like and and i say jarring being that like you don't get to read the whole thing and it like jumps between voices you well you don't get to uh, read the whole thing if you're reading it either but it jumps
1: between voices so okay. well because it, it, his he does
0: such a great job of, But it doesn't feel necessary i didn't i didn't love it if that makes sense like i'm not saying it's bad that's fair i it i enjoyed it
1: personally Because every single one of the, like, every single one of the articles had a different Mm -hmm. and distinct voice. And it it felt like, it felt like Newsies reading off different articles as you're, like, walking through a, like, town center.
0: I appreciate that from Kramer. I don't love it in the form of the book itself. Like, I appreciate Kramer's performance. You just, just skip it. Well, I know that's why I did again in this I mean, read through. But
1: yeah, yeah, I thought you were specifically talking about
0: the audiobook. Oh, no. no. Well, OK, for the record, I am talking about both the audiobook and otherwise. I think Kramer does a miraculous job delivering the broadsheet. I think that he really does it well. But at the same time, the information feels so unnecessary and like it pulls me out of the story so far versus like on page I can scan over it like a newspaper, right? Like a newspaper is designed for scanning and hitting the headlines and then pulling down from the headline if you like it and reading the text. And you can't do that in the audiobook necessarily. So it it's one of those things where I don't know entirely how I feel about it, but it did feel jarring to me, pulling me out of the story. So, okay. not not that like not like I was removed from the world. I still felt like I was in the world, but like I wanted the story to continue as opposed to listening to 10 minutes of you know, newspaper narrations, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Here, though, in the text, in this moment, I love it. I think it's yes. distinct. I think it fits. It's important. I misunderstood, though. I thought you were talking about sure. the,
1: the full page. So. No, no. Yeah. Either way, great delivery from Michael Kramer for the audiobook. And I, I felt I enjoy these little interjections, but I also really enjoy the external logbooks. <laughs> And maybe that's the same thing for
0: this. There, there is a reality of like, I don't, I don't think that they necessarily compare. I think my... Mm, no, they don't. My point is more of a pacing thing. My problem with the logbooks is more of an info dumpy thing. So th- those are different problems. And that pacing, again, is exclusive to the audiobook. Because if you're reading this, you've just got a full page in front of you and you just scan it, you know? So mm-hmm. being that I combo... Especially with these books, I was combo listening and reading versus for the most part, every other book, who except for Sanderson books, I've, I've spent a lot of time listening to. You know, mm-hmm. it's pretty much been my lived in experience, but I just remember being shaken by that. And I did literally skip it this time in this chapter. I was like, I know what this is. And I skipped that like seven minutes or whatever it was at the end of this chapter. It's not that so long. You listen at 2X. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, it is seven minutes if you listen at 1.3 which generally also my own fault i usually listen to michael kramer at 1.5 because he is slower than most audiobook narrators but i had him on 1.3 because i was listening to a different book before that's my own fault so bleh. okay but anyway i want to get back to the core point here the paper itself is really cool the journalistic instinct the newsies it's all awesome and Marisy's perspective here is she's patrolling the cities. It's just this great, wide open, you know, kind of picturesque moment where we really get to kind of see Dell for, like, the ugly city that it is to some degree. You know? Not the ugly city, but, you know, the, but, the true face.
1: Yeah. Scabs and all. blemishes mm-hmm. and all. Whatever.
0: Way better way of putting it. Yep. So... We move from Mery to Wax, who's gone to the village, which is this really primal stretch primal primal stretch of the city that has been allowed to be reclaimed by nature intentionally by the terrorist people. He's eventually greeted by two fair chemist brutes who stand guard and who block him from seeing the synod. He argues with them for a bit saying that he wants to see his elder. he wants to see Elder Veffendel, Veffendel, if I remember correctly think that's right and he's greeted by his dear old grandmother from we here out, on out Stroopwaffle, Stroopwaffle, similar <laughs> similar thing no i mean all told what's really funny is that i think brandon writes it out three or four times and then from then on out he refers to her as grandma v he's like fuck <laughs> this i can't i can't spell that anymore i can't be counted on but would you make of this uh, scene and like this introduction to the village
1: well, so there's there's a disconnect here in my brain. Because I had initially thought that Elendel was like just kind of a renaming of Luthadel, And then I remembered that the entire world kind of got shifted and we had this this discussion about how Sazed literally like formed this city. So why then would they need to allow nature to reclaim part of this city? That the terrorist god himself created, like, would he have not had created a perfect space for his terrorist people? And maybe, maybe, maybe he's more laissez faire than that. Just kind of built a framework and let them decide who belongs where. I don't know. That's an immediate thought that doesn't matter that much. What I continued to think about every time I read through the scene was there's obviously a fair, be like fair amount of outbreeding from the terrorist population to allow for these like twin born. And the fact that presumably wax has a fairly like comparably pure terrorist bloodline doesn't look the part. So like have all the like telltale physical traits of of the terrorist bloodline been completely bred out and like diluted or is he just kind of an anomaly that doesn't fit the bill of somebody that belongs in the area and is pushed aside for that reason by the guards or is it more of just a we don't know you so like you're not coming in
0: i think for them it's an i don't know you so you're not coming in for the guards at the very least but i do think that there's a little bit of kind of inner tribal contemplation as it comes to maybe people that have left the the group if that makes sense and tribal in the sense that like people form tribes as groups yeah but i do also want to bring up that the closest analogous thing that comes to mind is is native americans like the original people that yeah. were here it's it's very reminiscent of the experiences that i know that have of friends of whom have left and like come back and are like oh you you're doing xyz and there's there's just some of that like shame that is imparted in the same kind of way throughout this this section. That said, obviously there's outbreeding, and obviously those groups have have separated. I do want to back it up from the the concept of like breeding and kind of the way that things were going and go to what you're talking about with Sazed in the city again. Just to clarify, Sazed set them up with a really good plot of land. He didn't actually build the city. That is Spook's responsibility. He gave him the plan to do it. But, okay, just want to, you know, put that, like, Lord Mistborn built the city, but Sazed gave him a lot of plans on what to do. So, to that point, talking about this area, it does give this feeling, though, that, like, why did the terrorist people regress? Like, this is supposed to be, even according to Harmony's plan, to be this sort of perfect city. Like, why are they receding versus, like, joining? Like, what's what's the issue? It's, Especially considering it's blessed basically by harmony
1: to me it's not even that they're receding it's that they're living in a place that has been reclaimed by nature in that it was attributed to something else before and then the terrorist people moved in mm-hmm. and they allowed nature to like overgrow from there so like there's a gap here
0: sure that we're missing
1: they're also so like, kind
0: of receding though. Like they're they're not well, increasing with too. the population.
2: Yeah.
1: That's true too, but I wouldn't think that they'd be living in a reclaimed urban space if this wasn't like if there wasn't some sort of migration between when the city was founded and when and and now because they would sure. have they would have started with natural space to begin with. Right.
0: Right. I I definitely agree with that. Yeah. It, it makes for it makes for a very complex backstory to the terrorists that we're not quite sure on yet.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So especially with the Synod being reformed, like that entire idea of terrorist culture being preserved. Right. And the entire basis of a lot of like we'll talk about this a little bit more in a in a minute here. But I mean, did the Synod ever collapse? Technically. Yeah, they all died. Sazed it was seeking them and they were all gone in HOA. Oh, yeah. Yep. There were none left. So Elend was the one who discovered that, that they'd all been killed, and had all of their powers had been given to Inquisitors. So, so it effectively made, like, say, the last member of the, the Synod and the Harmony and whatnot. So it makes sense that they would reinstate it, don't get me wrong. And it does make sense also for this this culture to persist as preservers of culture. As such, it does make them feel like stodgy old folks, you know, comparatively. But at the same time, they're they're upholding their culture and there's nothing wrong with that. So mm-hmm. true. We move back from this perspective to Wayne, and he is getting real drunk <laughs> at this <laughs> point. And he's he's just drinking himself as deeply as he can. Cheers <laughs> inside of this one. He makes his way to the university, and we get our another taste of Eastern street slang. I I mean high imperial <laughs> in the form of wasing the always of wanting of knowing which is something that basically derives itself down to like perpetual knowledge and the idea of like knowledge always turns forward or something like that. I didn't write down the exact translation, but you know, it's, it's very funny. The insatiable thirst of knowledge an insatiable thirst of knowledge. That sounds right. So yeah, I mean, it's so funny to see this, you know, on the building is like a great callback to the, the kid who is considered, you know, the fool And have such this big imprint on society even with the way that he spoke
1: learning the street kid ways was freedom for him it was an outlet it was it was his way of getting out of the the problematic home that he lived within
0: right it was it was his way of escaping in a big way yeah and so that escape becomes the foundation of a separate version of language like Latin that's kind of the thing that we've been comparing it to you know consistently so we as I said we're back with Wayne he's getting real drunk but Wayne has real interesting time and runs into dims who helps him sneak into the university by distracting the guards from him he makes it inside and runs into the tyrant as he calls her and convinces her with a pair of exclusive tickets that he robbed from wax <laughs> before arriving at his pro traded yes of course he doesn't steal he trades but before he arrives at that prize and we'll talk about that in a moment but thoughts on the antics at large
1: i mean it feels like i I brought up the iliad earlier Mm -hmm. like it it feels like the odyssey it feels like the iliad Mm. in in his mythical conquest that he has to make in order to complete this journey even in, like, his descriptions of the of the challenges.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: A little bit more cartoonish than that, sure. I would go with Don Quixote instead. That's a better uh, one. It, it lends to that cartoonish, that humor, right? And that sort of yeah. misunderstanding. Don Quixote leans on, like, misunderstanding as its primary vehicle. But, you know, this is more of him mocking. But it lines up closer i think but i understand what you're saying like the the sort of mythical quest of like i have this random thing to beat and then this other random thing to beat to land at my prize his three trials yeah as he
1: describes them but what it does for me is it creates levity upon levity into this gut punch of a serious situation and it just makes that punch hit so much harder It felt brilliant to me to like increase the the severity of the of the serious interaction with his his source of grief,
0: his source of guilt to be bookended by antics. Definitely. And and the fact that he is like drunk as well, like drunk off of his ass to like try to get through these things just lends that self to this moment. Right. Like it, it it it. it adds to, like, the comedic tension of the scene. I think, it, I think I've think i mentioned this before, but tension by Chuck Palahniuk is described as a dance of strippers and comedians. Like, you can't just always have strippers and you can't just always have comedians. You need at a strip club to rotate between the two. So you have the strippers out for a while and they build the sexual tension and then you got to cut it with a comedian and then the comedian will build the comedic tension up until a point And then you cut it with a stripper and like you, you play those cycles as much as you can inside of writing to create a rhythm, right. And to like give mm-hmm. you those ups and downs. And this is a perfect execution of, of that comedic tension dropping down into that super serious moment. Uh, I cannot help but think of it as strippers and comedians, though. Like, there's no other metaphor that will ever live in my mind for tension anymore. It's unfortunate. But here yeah. we are. Here we are. <laughs> Thanks, Chuck. <laughs> Come on, Charles. Charles. So we should talk about the prize, of course, which we've already begun. But we get to the confrontation with Riandré, Al Riandré. I think that's right. One of the children of whom was affected by Wayne's young and callous killing of her father or their father. This is such a fucking powerfully somber moment, as you had mentioned. Like, we, we go from these high, funny moments to this deep, dark, kind of low moment. It really, like, digs at me every time I think about this book. This powerful resentment that she feels for him and the pain that he chooses to endure because he knows he deserves it. It is such a powerful section and is so emotionally affecting.
1: I mean, we talked earlier about how young he was when this happened. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's a complexity to tack onto this, but also she would prefer to not confront this at all. But Mm -hmm. once she's forced to confront it, she wants him to feel it too. And to feel it to the, to the, to the greatest extent
0: that he severity, Right. The balancing point that you're talking about is that sort of she feels this so intensely and there's no way for him to ever really feel the same kind of loss. And so she basically breaks him down to the point of begging for forgiveness, effectively, like not that he's actually asking for forgiveness in these moments, but he is just driven to the darkest depths of like sorrow for the thing that he did and you know even before this he sobers himself up and he's like okay here i got to be clean i got to be clear i got to burn through and it's it's tough it's also i i don't want to play that for a joke quite yet but other thoughts it's not a joke it's a oh, uh,
1: it it is i think a deceptively complex scene
2: mm-hmm
1: because it's just a it's a few lines of dialogue truly is what it really is but but there's so much history to the two of them and to their relationship and she's in college so she's uh, how how long has it been at this point it probably no more than 15 years like that would probably be the the longest it's been but at that point, she's been dealing with this every month since she was able to remember, basically, if she was like five.
0: So, like, th- this is this is a very strange relationship
1: that we're dealing
0: with. It is, it is, and I don't want to add anything obtuse to this. But I think that this also feeds into a thing that was played for more as a joke before. But if you if you think about the way that often trauma parents edible shit i'm going a little Freudian here but think about the way that in the first book in alloy of law wayne says he likes his women right which is that like they're they hold power over him in the same kind of way and this is sort of the there's sort of something base here to why he not like why he reacts that way but he reacts to both of those things again getting into Freudian shit here right like the the context or the idea that he feels the need to be punished for something and so seeks out domineering personalities if that makes sense or like has those domineering relationships or is guided by other people consistently and as such looks for those things in women I just see I see a parallel here or not necessarily a parallel but like a, a point of intersection on a grid
1: yeah I'm I'm sure there are comparisons that can be made there but i'm not going to pretend to <laughs> to have enough psychological know-how to to make a yeah
0: a good right right like comparison. it like i said it's it's kind of freudian but it's but, definitely yeah, i totally believe that like it plays into his same a lot of his power dynamics are built around the same premise right and this is of of subservience and repentance repentance and a lot of other stuff. So I, I guess I just, I see a little bit of that in this moment. And that's why I was like, I don't want to play it for a joke because it's not a joke. It feels like if I say right now, it's going to be a joke. It's actually kind of serious, but Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I just, I love this moment so much and I can't help, but be stuck on analyzing Wayne's character, you know, in, in large degree. And it's, it's worth noting that this entire chapter for all three of our characters is revealing for them, as it relates to another person and their status in the world in that world, I should say, in their own like isolated worlds, and Wayne's world, <laughs> God <laughs> didn't mean that Wayne's world <laughs> is pretty much defined by all Riandre and her sibling, and waxes has been defined in the past by the village and the terrace family that he has, and even and barely defined as we kind of learn by things, but definitely a ghost inspector in the past and confronting that individual. And Maricis is currently defined by her, her job. So yeah, future present or future past present in order as it were instead of this chapter. So I love it. It's just so fucking beefy. All right. Anything else on Wayne? I think that we were pretty, pretty thorough on that one. Cool. Like I said, this is one of those moments that I think about the most with this book. Is is this brutal confrontation is just so heart wrenching in a big way. So,
2: mm-hmm.
0: so we leave as Wayne walks out of the university, having left the money and moved back over to Wax. We almost take a step back in time, back into a hut stylized like the one preserved in the Lord Ruler's Palace. Really? Also, his pooping room. It's his pooping room. I just I wanted you to say it. I didn't. I couldn't. I couldn't write it myself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, his boobin <poop> room. <laughs> also, I don't know that I'd mentioned it earlier, but we got a name for the event that reforged the world, the catacondre, Catacondre. What do you make of the myth that's preserved here though by the terrorist culture in the form of the hut, as it were?
1: I guess it stuck out to me because even when the world has been completely changed, and the truth had been kind of shown, it, it like mm-hmm. we know what the truth is. The terrace people are still focused on preservation of myth and legend. Like myths and legends can, can pop up within three hundred years. But for the most part, it's pretty tangible history. It's like us talking about the founding of the United States. Like sure there are some some legends that go along with it and some myths. Blown out of
0: proportion, yeah.
1: But for the most part, it's pretty tangible history. So it's Interesting to see that persist within the terrorist people, but uh, it, to me it makes sense. That's that's what their people's entire history was focused on. So why change that? And and the history from before has been incredibly important to the to the founding of the world. So why why just let that slip away? The word that you mentioned, Cassandra. Cassandre yeah. do you know what like the breakdown of that word is the etymology at all cataclysm it seems pretty clear to me that like it it comes from the same base but is there anything else like is there anything etymologic that could point to what the definition of that word might be
0: yeah so kata is a greek prefix for like down or reversal you know, breakdown, reversal, changing back, and sandre is actually I can't say it without saying it with a Spanish accent, but it's actually a French word for cinder or ash. Sendre, sendre, kendre. So, reversing the ash. Interesting. Basically, or like undoing I mean, the ash, or that know.
1: perfectly apt. I didn't expect there to be such a like such a clear answer to that, but of course there is.
0: Yeah, that's why also when I was going through these notes, I'm like, did I not mention it before this? I should have mentioned it before this. Thanks for asking. Yeah, because mm-hmm. <laughs> it is such an apt name. It's perfect. It's it's a great etymological root. And often, as we pointed out before, like Sanderson doesn't lean a whole lot on real world things because he's creating his own fictional world. Like, why would you lean anything in versus one of the things that we highlighted in Red Rising a lot was philosophies and governments and words and etymologies and all these crazy things. It's in this universe. So, yeah. But this one, this one is nice and fancy for me to talk about nice this and, one time.
1: Nice and fancy and different.
0: Nice and fancy and different just for me. Okay. <laughs> so moving on. As Wax referred to his grandmother, so shall I. So Grandmother V is a bit of a big old jerk, but she's not entirely wrong in her assessment of Wax as being rude. He's got a code and a set of rules and he totally follows them. As they continue on in the conversation, there's very much a you never call, you never write. Why don't you come here? Sort of conversation that doesn't feel humorous. Like most of those do like most of those play out, but instead like fairly venomous. She like, she really resents him for not being a part of their society and culture. He even invokes harmony as a comparison point for his choices. At one point during the argument, I just, this conversation fascinates me.
1: Yeah. I totally felt the venom in that, in
0: those statements
1: it's pretty clear to me that like wax expected that venom mm-hmm. and he's in like, he understands that he's strayed pretty far from the typical terrace path that mm-hmm. she expects of him. But I do wonder in the face of this conversation, if he'll change it all or if he'll keep that in mind, if we'll ever see any sort of deviation of his typical thought process or plan after this conversation happens. Because it's at his forefront. He he makes all of his decisions, presumably and typically, from what I can tell, in the name of good. But that doesn't necessarily align with what the morals of his people, like his ancestral people, would think. So, I'm excited to see where that goes.
0: Yeah, there there's just so much like meat here on the bone. And what I find so fascinating about this is, while it does feel like this is all inherited terrorist culture... It still is like a deep peak that we didn't really necessarily get in the first series into terrace culture, right? Like, this is, while they still worship a myth and while they cannot be the same as kind of the first hand experience of the terrace before the catacondre, it does have that sort of flavor of the old world, you know, and it has that understanding and it gives me more on the terrace bone where. I think the logbooks tried to fill in more of the terrorist culture, but this gives a much more explicit sort of rendition of what the terrorists were really like outside of just Mm -hmm. the book itself. Right. Which is to say, judgmental shrews for the most part. Yeah. So, (laughs) So, after continuing to interrogate why he denies the peaceful terrorist life, Wax finally begins to get to the heart of things as he gets his grandmother V to give him potential information on the woman being kidnapped the woman named idashwi the steel runner, and how that he, a Sinfew, should try to bring her back. I
1: mean, he can definitely bring her back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Every once in a while, PJ. <laughs> I know that you I know that you crack yourself up, but like sometimes I'm just like did he really say that? Did he really, like, it's not like it's offensive. It's just like, wow, you took it to a whole new level. I love it. You're right. She can come back. She She's, might be a corpse. Well, We're all corpses. All right. We are almost with this chapter. We round out this chapter, rather, with... Two scenes that we're going to talk about that kind of feel totally at home in law and order, or would feel at home in some industrial revolution law and order. Mercy makes her way into the police precinct contemplating your father's money that she gave her and the education and the capability to get where she got and the privilege that she possesses as such a recipient. It's excellent to see a character like Mercy spend so much time on this internal dialogue as we really get to know her more than just being smart and capable, but adding further depth to our understanding of a lot of things. I mean, we've we've gotten this before. But again, Chapter 5 is focused on just bringing further depth into each of these characters, which I really, really love.
1: Yeah, it's a complexity that will be fun to explore as we mm-hmm. keep, continue to go forward with this character. We know from our interactions with her and her insights of wax that she's very good at what she does. Mm-hmm. She has a natural talent to it and deserves to be in the position that she's at. On the other hand, though, she's confident in her abilities, but at the same time, sees this sort of self-consciousness in how she got to this position. And it, it's it's going to be a very constant nature versus nurture kind of struggle. And those are fun. They're fun to
0: do. Yeah. Yeah. There's also, in addition to nature versus nurture, there's also an equality versus equity kind of thing going on with her too, where it's like, well, if everyone had the same opportunities that I do, would everyone be doing better? And that's extra interesting for her because she is a lawyer and a law keeper, you know, like she is responsible for upholding the law. So she, it adds that extra layer to someone of whom is otherwise a cop, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know. But it gives her, I think, a lot more depth mm-hmm. in that in that context and capacity because she is always considering all of the other people around her and it really humanizes her in a big way. Right. Yeah. So yeah, all of it. I God. Again, we talked about how long this chapter is, but it's a it's a fantastic fucking chapter. Uh um, it is. Yeah. Like it could be you you could very probably
1: easily with a little bit of intro and outro make it into a short story.
0: Yeah, on its own. Yeah. It it has enough context that it is just delicious. It's so well written. I I love this. Mm-hmm. So, we truly end our chapter though with a conversation that is driven and revolves around Claude Aradel and the impending reaction to the crimes that have been committed over the course of the week and the weekend and the murders and everything else. And kind of the insightful conversation that can happen here as well as Marcy's own social ignorance as it pertains to Reddy and why he resents her as much as he does. What do you make of these comments and kind of are Adele given the extra context?
1: I, I think it only further deepens that previous nature nurture struggle. But at the very least, and we we kind of see it in her, in her perspective, it allows her to rationalize why these negative emotions exist towards her from her colleagues. Mm -hmm. And like that rationalization and, and removing the sort of mystery of where this animosity comes from calms her down. Mm -hmm. It sucks, but it, it doesn't change the situation at all. And now she understands
0: it. So Yeah. Gives her a base to go on at the very least. Mm -hmm. She's got something to like actually internalize that she's been skipping over.
1: Yeah. And like she's got the self-consciousness and she's got maybe guilt or whatever, whatever emotion might be bubbling up as a result. But the situation doesn't technically change. And, and she's the kind of person that would recognize that and find comfort in knowing why everyone's mad at her without adding anxiety
0: outwardly or explicitly at least regarding the why. Totally. I I definitely agree with that. And I think that that is an excellent analysis of the character. Again, because I think a lot of, she only voices something when it gets seemingly so far, she's only voiced things when it eh, passes past presses past a certain threshold. And that's when she like really starts to break down and, and force communication in one way or another. That's when she forces hands of like, well, I like you and like gives in more information is when she, you know, feels that breakdown in communication. And so in a similar way here, it's like, why does he hate me? And it just so happens that Ariel actually has a genuine reason as to why he resents her. And a lot of the people do. And it also gives her a foundation to play off of into the future. Hopefully. If she can, you know, take that in and run with it, like he hopes she can. That's the other part here. Is like he is truly in like a positive way, an excellent mentor. It feels in these. I moments, mean, at the very least,
1: moment. can we talk about how like, cohesive this unit has to be for everyone to hold animosity towards her for like, <laughs> yeah, over jumping this one
0: dude. <laughs> True true like this This is is a
1: close-knit unit
0: (laughs) this is some Brooklyn Nine-Nine shit for sure yeah yeah like this is this is (laughs) them against the captain have you seen Brooklyn Nine-Nine I assume you have I don't know okay all right okay the joke didn't land all of it but okay the joke didn't land which is why I was like what they're usually like all they'll all group together against the captain whatever they need to you
1: know I I was trying to think because that's such a small group
0: yeah Sure. I was trying to think of a better,
1: like, bigger cohesion.
0: Parallel. Yeah, okay.
1: Because this seems like an Um, entire precinct.
0: (laughs) I'm sure there's one or two military movies out there where it's similar, where, like, everyone groups up against one person, you know, in a similar kind of way. Mm -hmm. I'm sure one of the characters in Glorious Bastards gets bullied by everyone else for the whole story, you know, a few good men, etc. I just can't remember who, so... Yeah, I agree with you, core point. I just can't think of another example. Rudy? No, not actually Rudy. Rudy from what? Am I... The movie Rudy? Oh, oh. (laughs) Folks, we've been going for a while. All right, (laughs) with that, into Chapter 6. What's fun about Chapter 6... We've got a lot of beats to cover. This is a very fun chapter, especially in the way that it's written. We move from this very dense chapter, there's a lot of character moments, into something that is brilliantly paced with a little bit of exposition. So we start with that exposition, and we cut to wax here, flying over the city of Ellendale, working his damnedest to kind of hear it all and take it all in. We get a bit of an info dump and explainer on some of the politicking that goes on in the city and the way that the councils and senates are built, and how it's split between you know people who are elected of the people and the people who are elected by by the government and sort of his responsibility for the working class beneath him inside of his octant and the number of people that he feels responsible for, which is overwhelming for him in a lot of way. And I do really appreciate this because I, I said info dump. It sounds like a bad thing. This is all so firmly locked in his voice oh that it like pays off. Well, like it, it sounds good because it sounds like something he's genuinely contemplating, not just like we're being force fed information Not like a yeah. logbook, for instance. I mean fuck you.
1: I th- I felt like this was a great peek into the day-to-day stresses mm-hmm. and thoughts of wax like when he's not hunting a bad guy, you know? He's not chasing a criminal mastermind, whatever it might be. It's stressful as fuck. Like, there's so much going on. It makes me wonder like how's all this getting done when he is chasing a bad guy? but i'm sure that'll come up at some point the answer is probably he's not <laughs> <laughs> but regardless like i really appreciate this sort of info dump because of it, it's evocative of a logbook it's not evocative
0: of a logbook <laughs> but i understand i, I get no, it. i'm, I get I'm it. saying that because yeah. you said that you're just you're just trying to push my button i do want no, to mention
1: here truly though i don't know if we'll get We get more mercy, but I don't know if we'll get a situation where it comes up. Her in a stressed situation to me feels like a logbook entry where she's just spouting off information, even if it's just internal. Like we're getting so much external information (laughs) that I truly love. (laughs)
0: That's fair. Her reaction in stressful moments is to immediately go to her brain and dig out a textbook and like Mm -hmm. recant something from a textbook, basically, which is, it's pretty great. I think that, I think it plays better to me than a logbook does too, because it's like, it's in world, feels good. It's a character's reaction to stimuli too. I do want to make mention of, though, just while we're talking about, kind of voice and everything else. I I also really enjoy Wax's comparison of the city to the towns that he lived in and sort of the social strata that existed there in the towns. Everyone knew each other. Everyone supported each other because it was a small, basically extended family versus the city has is more like an organism. Almost he doesn't draw that comparison necessarily, but like you have those two comparisons that he's bringing up Mm -hmm. and while he hasn't quite gotten there yet. You know, as far as that comparison goes, he does have a preference and he does still feel like a fish out of water in the city.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Don't have to make a big point of
1: it, but that's no, it's just not, not a big point to make, but I want to see modern wax in the roughs. I think it would. Cool. I think it'd fit. You
0: think he'd fit there? I think so. Cool.
1: Maybe that's right. not a good thing. Maybe you don't want someone that fits in the rough. The, the police, the roughs.
0: Well, it's kind of the Miles problem, right? Like, almost. Where it's like it, he, he yeah. became so jaded to the whole thing that, you know, it's not a good thing. So, Wax arrives on the roof of the largest Church of the Survivor in his octant. It's overseen by Water Tower and notices some picketers over in the Tindwell Promenade and softly superhero lands among them his coat tassels flapping up as they do and this sort of unrest begins to take a forefront in the story what what do you make of it
1: my primary thought on it is that this makes it feel like a living modern city as opposed to like just scenery like the people are becoming a very real and and viable character in and of themselves,
0: a tangible force. Yeah, yeah. That's totally the way that I think about it. Is like it's definitely something. It was it was something similar. understated you or implied in the first trilogy
1: mm-hmm. of how the how the ska people at large reacted to leadership or reacted to the noble people, and like we we saw the the extremes and the rebellions but we didn't see just day-to-day uprisings of like picketing and stuff like that because they didn't happen first and foremost but because that's not something Brandon would have thought to have focused on I think
0: yeah I, I I would agree with you I think that this is I loved your description of calling it like a lot of the other cities and things like that that we've gotten previously have been scenery and that this does make it feel like it's living and breathing right because this is life this is something moving this is action and our our characters also actively have to take part in it or like a part of it and so it does give this sort of in and out the lungs to some degree of, of an actual working city in a big way so yeah yeah I, I would agree with you I think that this is something that love the original trilogy solid, you know, eights with an occasional moments of nines and whatnot, like we've we've talked about previously. But this is something that's missing in some degree. Like you just want to you want to feel one with kind of the moments. You get a lot of it in Urto. Like you do. That's that's the city that feels the most alive. But up until then, you know, we're kind of we're yeah. hurting for a little bit of this. And this is it makes it feel real. It makes the whole situation feel real. And it ties into the plot, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: We move to Wax and Wayne having a conversation about this difficult time of the month for him when he goes and pays his dues, as it were, and Wayne asks a brutal question of Wax, wax. do you ever wonder if you just should have shot me back when you and John first found me? And Wax responds to the question of a second chance with luck. And it seems pretty callous at first, but then he gives a more substantive answer that Everyone else has been found killing, and while he truly seemed not to mean to, while he being Wayne truly seemed not to mean to have killed, and has since lived in perpetual atonement for these sins that he's committed. I, I just kind of want your your thoughts on this whole this whole sort of scene. That's sort of the it's kind of like a come up and a denouement for his crimes. Like this, this to me feels like the fourth trial in a big way. The first three trials that we've had are are the three that he gets to to get to, you know, to get to the punishment. But this feels like absolution from the judge that he consistently seeks in service to the man. You know.
2: Yeah,
1: this felt like deja vu to me for a little bit. Was there another comment where Wayne asked or where where Wax said he would have shot Wayne? And Wayne, Wayne like thanks him for it. Like I feel like that happened before.
0: It actually happens a little bit later, and it's it's a little bit it's a little bit after this where he would he like thanks him for potentially like killing him in the, a situation I thought, I thought like that, that. Was right here. No, I don't think so. I think it's it is in chapter six, but I think it's when they're in the apartment. Well, so I don't think it's way, right like, now.
1: The first time I read it, it yeah. felt like it happened either.
0: Oh no, it is this moment. I fucked up. You're right. You're right. I thought it was later. I thought it was when they were in the apartment. It is right here. Mm-hmm. You're not lying. Are you? Of course not. I'd have shot you right in the head, Wayne. You're a good friend. Thanks wax. You're the only person I know that could cheer me up. by promising to kill him. You didn't promise to kill that, me. You that- promised to have killed me. He stated
1: there is something beautiful to Wayne's reaction though. And like he, he is somebody that I'm going to constantly try to like get a, good grip of within his head. And I'm never going to be able to, I know it's odd that he reacts this way and it's pointed out as such, but that itself is also true to him. Yeah. He, he is very clearly broken and consumed by this mistake that he made
0: very clearly. And this is also, again, gets back to that, like seeking absolution thing that he's doing here, which is like, yeah, it's not like he's going, you know, "Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned" or anything. But he's kind of in that same boat where it's like, you know, why did you kill? Me? Why didn't you kill me? And like, can you imagine having that conversation? I'm getting, I'm getting goosebumps thinking of like having said that out loud. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about that conversation. Like, oh man, this is a brutal, brutal bit. I love, man, I fucking love these books. They're so fucking good. So. Yeah, it's tough. I,
1: I just have to interject here. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is about me. I don't know where this came from, but every time I hear I hear the term "forgive me, Father," for I have sinned, I always repeat it in my head as "forgive me, Daddy," for I have sinned. Yeah, no. and it just does, like it doesn't make things land the same way.
0: <laughs> no, that's a little bit different. I guess the point was, I get it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right, we finish weird...
0: these, this episode absolutely not this episode right. never ends so we move on from wax and Wayne and over to Marisy, who's noting the price speculation on the food seems to be on the rise what do you make of these expensive apples and the implications of the price increases well good
1: joke these apples good joke
0: these, what what apples. Think of these apples
1: <laughs> ha 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 ha, ha. <laughs> I think I really appreciated the interaction because it, it mm-hmm. proves and and highlights the stark the stark legal lines that Marisi tends to follow mm-hmm. and it just makes me wonder if Wax was in the same position how he would approach this interaction because I mean we talked about Laws as written versus the laws as intended.
0: Um, <laughs> yes. In the devil's they,
1: skin, they feel probably. like very like th- they feel like they both have very different views on the reason ha- how to approach the law, I guess.
2: hmm.
0: Yeah. It is the trio of them make for a, a fascinating odd like you want to say odd couple, like that's that's sort of the aphorism as it were for them, but they're like an odd trio in the way that they each approach the law in fundamentally different ways. Wayne barely acknowledges its existence. Wax is firmly on the side of almost following it to the letter. I and they Mercy Se- Okay, you're right. You're right. Mercy and Wax bend it in different ways. That's the important thing to note here. They like bend it to their means, but in their own way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Wax also has when, an open when does pass. does bend it?
1: With bribing the kids? She's allowed to do that. She has to remind herself that she's not in court here. So she can. Yeah, do that. yeah. I, I guess she that's couldn't a moral do that in court. opposition.
0: You're right. You're right. That's a moral opposition. That's not a legal opposition. Yeah. Fair mm-hmm. point. She hasn't yet. Yeah, I mean fair point. But they do approach the law differently, I guess, was my core point. Like the three of them have very different mentalities as it rotates around the law. And it makes mm. sense. They all have three different upbringings. One guy broke the law, one guy was an enforcer of the law on the outskirts, and one is a brand new lawyer who's also a active constable. So lawyer cop. Lawyer cop. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, mercy continues to the hub though down the spokes of the octants and is flanked by lieutenant Javies making their way to the national archives mercy is looking for a way to listen to the governor's speech and if there's any possibility of getting any closer but all those spots are taken i love that eventually the old officer recognizes her and calls her a bastard but doesn't mean it is an insult just as a fact and i really don't think it can be both like i'm not certain that it can't be both i think it has to be both I don't know that there's any way to not... Conf- well, I not- mean, the
1: the way that you kind of separate it is intention. Like, I, she can take in, like...
0: Yeah, fair. And he does have a positive intention. Like, that's that was his, yeah, whole point. N-
1: not necessarily positive, but not negative either. Like, there was no right. malice to it. He wasn't intending to insult her. She can take offense yeah. to it uh, every day of the week if she wants to. But yeah. His... He comes across fair as point.
0: just kind of
1: a... I don't want to say bumbling because that's not necessarily
0: true, but he
1: reminds me of well,
0: kind from a like very similar.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's well-meaning. Yep. He he's trying to, to make a connection and recognizes that he knows part of this connection and kind of play off of that, but mm-hmm. doesn't realize that there's strain there or, or right. negative right. connotation there. So, like, I, I i didn't see it as malice or or insulting in any way
0: yeah that's fair that makes sense to me i i guess like it's just tough because it's like especially given her sensitivity and the like social proclivity. like in general it's an insult but he does make some decent amends for it in the immediate moment but you know it's it's still a mm-hmm. moment inside of the national archives Especially with the crowds gathering and rioting, like this is the thing that you stop to talk about, is <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. this
0: bastard child, you know. Yeah. So we go back from there to Wax and Wayne making a move on a Dash Wee's apartment building. It's a great scene that sets up a simple lives that most of the people of Ellendale live in, much like more modern apartments with simple amenities, nothing fancy. As I look around my own place, except for a bloody corpse in the middle of the room, I got one of those to I mean, high society homes have decorative <laughs> corpses in the middle of their rooms. Don't you know that? I got one. It, okay. I said it was in the middle of the room. It's in my ottoman because it's a pullout ottoman. So what I did is I put them in and then I just crunched them up, you know, because uh, I can uncrunch oh, them later if I need to. It increases the stiffness. I get it. It does. It does. Yeah. yeah. It <laughs> makes it so when you, when you put your feet on it, it bounces a little bit. It gives it's it rigid. gives it just that extra. Yeah. It's nicer in the long run, especially since I mostly work from my couch. Nah, not mostly, but you know, occasionally. <laughs> oh, that's fucked, oh, man! <laughs> it's super fucked. <laughs> not as bad as the "bury a body in a marsh" conversation that we had back in Red Rising. But well, I mean, that was it's close. Practical. That was just advice. Yeah, that was practical.
2: <laughs> this is
1: a joke.
0: <laughs> no it's furniture advice i don't know what you're talking about this is how you stiffen your soft ottoman after after you've had this ottoman fun fact the ottoman that i have in this room is the ottoman that my dad had when i was 10 and it was soft until i put the body in it and now it's great now it like it it's got that firmness to it that you'd want it's got that mm-hmm. that stiff rigidity that you might expect from a sloppy rotting corpse so we
1: started about the
0: aroma <laughs> we move back to mercy and at this point in the scene and place in the book i almost feel like we're wit- witnessing like a kennedy style assassination like from her perspective she's like trying to scramble up and like there's all this tension between kind of the scenes as we've been moving mercy runs through an old study of Mirabelle's rules in her head, as we mentioned before, she does these things when she's stressed and trying to figure stuff out. One that says that people who are invested work harder and and lead, and that leads to their feeling of ownership in something. You know, it's a simple thing, but another example of the scholar that we're inhabiting in this age and kind of the point of view. You know, a lot of the time, I wish we would have gotten this from Ellen as opposed to just getting it in conversation. Like this is a great example of just some of those moments that can like lead you to believe that this person feels like a scholar, you know? Yeah. I
1: mean, and this is this is that sort of feels like a logbook situation. Like there's just a lot going on and she's just kind of
0: letting her mind run. Mind run. This is like an open book into my head, Merizy sometimes is. Like this is this is how I react to shit. And I'm like, Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. so the governor finally steps up for his speech and it's not one that addresses the people's needs exactly but instead the crisis of his brother's death and a disaster in the east outside of town but nothing to address the people here and now who are being trodden upon but then a guardsman steps up and levels his pistol at the governor
1: like I don't know situation surrounding the speech and tone deaf is the first word that would come up <laughs> in this conversation <laughs> yeah if we were talking yeah. about it <laughs> like, yeah.
0: tone deaf at best that yeah this is demonstrably self-obsessed and to that point absolutely tone deaf like mm. the self-obsession leaves to how tone deaf it is because wax has seen the unrest all of our characters have seen the unrest in different moments throughout this this entire book so far so it just it yeah.
1: I get, I get that this in, is information that needs to be spread and talked
0: about and discussed, but now is not the time, man. And, and this does get back to something that I'd mentioned earlier about like yellow journalism. Right. And so like the idea that these penny pages became so popular that, that, they would create outrage in a a big way for a lot of people. And especially for politicians during this era, they were flustered and frustrated because they thought that it genuinely represented the will of the people because so many people bought them. And then they influenced people because it was the lowest price point. People would write anything to inflame people. It was this cycle of disinformation about the immediate moment leading to outrage, leading to leaders reacting, leading to, New yellow papers with new outrage that was stretched on the previous truth. And it was just this cycle that continued to spin outwards, which is what this is pointing to. That's this whole speech point, right? Is that like because it's pointing in the wrong direction, the governor is aiming in the wrong direction. He's pulling the trigger for a gun in the wrong direction. And as such, he is almost assassinated. Bring this up. I I do love that the perspective switches here. And so we don't get this release of tension until we explore the apartment. But we're just going to wrap this up with Marisy before we continue back to the apartment. Marcy manages to save the day. She's found a way to shrink the bubble that she creates burning cadmium, manages to capture the guard of whom levels the gun without the fire, the, the bullet going off. Actually, rather, it does go off, but it ricochets out as the blue redshift happens and the guardsman leading the charge is disabled and it leads to his arrest. Dude, I mean, crisis averted, of course, but you know, yeah.
1: Nah. I'm curious about. It, it feels like a breakthrough that she's able to make it smaller, but we,
0: we know that
1: she was understand. Like, I don't. Know. I'd like to understand what her actual comprehension of the abilities were before this point. But it is a, it is good to see like, she and Wax have the, or she and Wayne have complementary or opposite however you want to look at it powers that operate very similarly with with an inverse effect so getting that very explicit understanding of the size of the bubbles mattering from wax at the beginning of the story to this feels very very good I'm just kind of at a loss about why it's noteworthy that she was finally able to make it smaller when she understood that it was a variable size to begin with
0: yeah i i think that that has to do with some like embarrassment around using her powers and maybe therefore like never choosing to train with them you know a large part that's that's all assumption
1: it's assumption but like she
0: understands that so maybe it's just aptitude and being able to control it well enough yeah i think so and i think that's based on time at the wheel so to speak yeah okay so, that, that was my that. assumption. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More or less. So, yeah. It, I mean, there's a lot to be said for the way of, like, quantifying these abilities yet. But, at the very least, it feels like time at the wheel helps. And it does seem to dictate the way that they're controlling them so far, as we're aware. So, that's why mm-hmm. Wayne feels like an expert. And Marisy does pull in some bystanders. Like, she is not fully... like she. Not fully mastered, like a small bubble or anything like that. She does pull in some randos, but if it works, it works. We shift perspectives. Way to go, Branderson. Back to Wayne for a quick volley. He drinks some whiskey that he doesn't particularly love. And this is where we got our like rum whiskey comment earlier. So clearly, Wayne's a whiskey guy and Wax is a, or sorry, Wayne is a rum guy, Wax is a whiskey man. And as such they're they're separate on the spectrum which makes it kind of fun. And Wax opens up that he's got to tell Wayne about the book that death gave him and begins to explain hemolurgy and the likelihood that someone killed this woman and left her on the floor to steal her ability to steal run. I mean, hemolurgy is such
1: a cool thing but it got tied up so well at the end of like somehow somehow hemelurgy in its entirety became chekhov's gun and i love it <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> i love it i'm so excited for this mhm it, it is, it is very funny because now it's like, oh God, like stealing abilities. They're going to be making, you know, a full mist born maybe, or like a metal born. Obviously they're staring, they're stealing fair chemical abilities, but like what they could do. We that? referred to that as a Lord ruler basically. Right. Yeah. Like this is such a, like a, a, it's a new, we we've gotten two murder mysteries to follow so far in the span of these chapters. And this one is like, oh my God, there's so much here. I'm so ready. I'm so ready. This is also like walking into a 7 apartment, you know what I mean? Like a new room in 7 in a big way.
1: What is even cooler for me, just to think about, Mm -hmm. we know that spikes can take many forms. Yes. It just has to be metal, like a Uh bullet.
0: Okay, yeah. I don't know, gunslinger, hemorrhagist. It's pretty sweet. That's pretty fucking (laughs) awesome. I am not I'm not disagreeing here. That's Annette for sure.
1: becoming like just the the center for hemallurgy cuz she's the one that's creating like different metal bullets and cuz you have to have different metals, right, in order to do all that.
0: Yeah, a lot of those are different. Yes, our our knowledge of hemology says that there are different metals for different things. I'm just it's thinking like
1: just think about the the inquisitor like spike parties. Yes. That they would spike have? Spike parties.
2: <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but, but with firearms. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> the Inquisitive Spike parties. Oh, no. Like, when Marsh is in the room and all those people are dying, that's a Spike party do you? I mean, you're not wrong, but... They're all cheering. Uh. <laughs> playing in the blood. <laughs> I'm so upset. I'm actively so what upset. What would you call it? What would you call it? I don't think you're wrong. That's the the issue is, is that I think you're right. Fuck me. We just hit the that five was... hour mark. The spike parties, though. That's a brutal, man. I don't I don't know how to come <laughs> back from that. But bring guns into the mix. I need help. I need. I need Jesus. I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> I do love the way that this chapter ends. There, there are a couple of different beats as they they begin to contemplate the way that this story is going. Right, Wax in particular says they've crept into the realm of gods of Iron Eyes of Harmony and of all of these different components that are playing together against them. And there's just this wonderful note to end the week on, which is also why I chose this chapter, which is that someone else moves us lawmen are the words that we end our week on. They're the same words that Bloody Tan whispered to him before Lesi's death all those years ago.
1: Motherfuck. (laughs) What a way to end. Like, yeah. I don't think I remember, like in my first read through this, I don't think I remembered that that was the same term but i certainly do now i certainly did after like after that mm-hmm. but that's a that's an intense intense thing to say to someone
0: yeah crazy the idea that like obviously bloody tan has played off so quick inside of the original story and this is just wonderful in the way that it brings it back in force we've had his specter haunting in the background we've seen the dead ghost of Lessie a couple of times like there's so much trauma here for for wax that is he ever going to be able to outrun it i don't know i don't
2: know i don't know
0: we'll see we'll see mm-hmm. all right pj with that all right. <laughs> next week Next week, we are going to be reading chapters 7 through 13. It's 100 pages. It's, it's 100 pages. It's not that bad. It's 100 pages. Easy. So, easy peasy. Probably no no repeats on chapter 5 <laughs> anywhere inside of this read. Anywhere inside of most of the books that we're reading for the rest of ever. Or as long <laughs> as 5. In audio form. So, with that. That's where we'll leave you for this week.
1: Thank you for hanging out for five hours. I <laughs> to be five hours long, but I know. know thank you to Tim and Andrew for <laughs> all of your help and everything that you do in keeping our show going. You mean the world to me and I love you very much. Also check out the show notes. <laughs> you can find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, our websites, our social media accounts, all in one very nice, easy, convenient location
0: a big thank you to B Dano for joining us at the barback tier and for coming and hanging out with us inside of the discord. We're super excited to have you and to chat about all things, obviously Mistborn, Red Rising, House of Dragon, the the whole works. We're, we're glad to have you. Thanks for joining and supporting the show friend. Yeah. Yeah. I saw. So sorry.
1: Super excited to have you in the server and just a part of this community because it's a, of fun so
0: we appreciate all the support if you want to support us in any variety of ways as pj had mentioned earlier you can check us out words whiskey pod on twitter instagram and reddit words and whiskey show gmail.com patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey and we've got t-shirts on t public you can check them out yeah yes we do sweet so thank you so much we'll see you next week covering the next quarter of shadows of self hey oh hey oh goodbye
1: bye